There was some speculation about our use of the period Warner Brothers and Paramount logos as to whether or not we were trying to um, make the movie seem like it was made in the 1970s. And although I think it was born out of the desperation to have just some idea, <laughs> any idea, we just hit upon this notion of using the period logos just to um, kind of set a, the analog scene for how the drama would unfold. I wanted to do this very long tracking shot that takes you into Vallejo on the 4th of July. I wanted to kind of see, you know, some notion of normalcy or, you know, just rows of houses and, and people going about their lives before, you know, we sort of introduced the violence. We tried using all kinds of special stabilizers to put them inside the Corvair and drive down the street, but what ended up happening was we were either kind of locked to the car and the world around us sort of shook and jiggled or we were locked to the world when we had a gyro stabilizer and the, and the car sort of wiggled and shook. So we ended up laying about 450 feet of dolly track and mounting the camera inside the Corvair and pushing the Corvair down the dolly track in order to get that shot. It's a little insane, but it just needed to be that sort of detached indifferent view of the rows of houses and the, and the people with their barbecues. There's so many things that are kind of oddly personal in this. Um, there was an A&W drive-in restaurant that was on 4th Street in San Rafael that I remember very vividly uh, as a child. We used to go there every once in a while for floats, but it looked very much like Mr. Ed's. And so that was sort of what was sticking in my mind. When we were trying to lay out the opening sequence and, and how we would see Vallejo and how we would see this period and see the opening night. I was looking for a piece of music and originally we had cut this scene to Big Brother and the Holding Company's All is Loneliness, which was a beautiful track and the music really fit the scene. And um, George Draculius, who did the music supervision, came to me with some other ideas just to say, hey, we should definitely explore everything and here are some other ideas. And we listened to some more kind of psychedelic San Francisco kind of music. And finally, we got to the uh, Three Dog Night. It was odd because I was in second or third grade when this whole thing happened. And I remember so vividly driving through Sonoma from Vallejo. It's an area known as Black Point. And I remember being in the back of my... Um, parents, 65 Impala, and the windows were rolled down. It was the beginning of summer, and you could smell eucalyptus, and this song was playing on the radio. And there was something about it when I heard it. It literally transported me personally <laughs> to the summer of 1969, which is, again, a purely subjective thing. And, you know, making movies ultimately is a wholly subjective thing. But I remember being just feeling, you know, very misty when I when I heard that music and I heard it playing over that those pictures. I love the scene. I love the way Lee and Kira played this. It's an odd thing because in the reality of what really took place, they were much more knowing, or certainly Michael felt that they were much more knowing about who the person was that came in the car. In fact, he said that at one point he actually said to Darlene, I'm not getting shot for this. And we thought, <laughs> it's a good line, but I, I, don't, I don't know that we can use it because of what's about to happen that can, couldn't really 
have somebody say, I'm not, I don't want to get shot for this, and then have them get shot. It had to kind of come out of nowhere. There has been some conjecture about why we used a Mustang instead of a Corvair, because the police reports regarding uh, Blue Rock Springs, um, Michael Mejo said he couldn't tell what kind of car it was. Um, it was either a Corvair or, a, or he thought a Mustang, a bronze color. So we debated it for a while, and eventually we all agreed that it would be too <laughs> too doppelgangery, too ironic, too much of a Charlie Kaufman movie if an exact duplicate of the car that they were in showed up behind them. We certainly had three bronze-colored Corvairs and could have put it in there, but it, we just felt that it needed to be a, a different car. The silencer in this sequence, you know, is a hotly debated issue. In police reports, we have people who are pretty sure that they heard gunfire. But there are also people who said that there were firecrackers being lit in the actual parking lot. And when Mejo walked us through it, one time he was pretty sure that there was a silencer, and another time he was not so sure. We opted to have the silencer because it was in the police report that it was a silencer, and also to, you know, again, show that the silencer was probably homemade and not real effective. <laughs> in conversations with Mejo, it was unclear as to whether or not he threw himself over the seat into the back of the car when the firing began or when the assailant returned with the reloaded gun. Um, in the blocking of the scene, it seemed to work better that he, once he realized that the shooter was going to return, or, or had returned and was going to continue, that he sort of ejected himself into the back seat. And again, this is, there is no way to make a movie that's not subjective. You have to make decisions about what the behavior is and you have to sort of work with what dramatically uh, works. This is one of my favorite shots in the movie. It's the uh, opening push-in on San Francisco. It was very important to me that two things be seen. One, that we see the Embarcadero Freeway that fell in the 1989 earthquake and had to be dismantled and carted away. And also behind it, one of the most important landmarks for me, <laughs> which was the, uh, the construction of the Hyatt Regency. Because I remember the day that it opened in my parents brought us into San Francisco to ride the elevators that went up to the equinox. And I love the idea of seeing this cosmopolitan city, or the city that San Francisco was when I was a kid. It was a very sort of jewel-like kind of cosmopolitan oasis. And that's sort of what I wanted to get across in that opening shot. There will be a test tonight. This is a matte painting that was done by Matt World. They did most of the matte shots in the, in the movie. And again, it's very, very subtle work on the edges of the frame and the top of the frame. This is not the foyer of the actual Chronicle building. We did use the Chronicle building for the exterior. But the foyer and the um, elevators, it's kind of based more on my recollection of the, um, the Time Life building in San Francisco where my father used to work and when I would go visit him. 
again, just, I, I mean, I saw this movie as flying in the face of a lot of things that I'd done before, and I, and I liked the idea of doing something that was very, very simple in terms of its travel and cause and effect. I mean, really all we wanted to do was bring this one specific letter into this world. I mean, the Chronicle is a key kind of hub in the movie because it's where all the information is sort of disseminated, and it's certainly where a couple of our leads, you know, come in contact with the, the idea of the Zodiac. But it was written in the script. It was a beautiful sequence that was much more elaborate in that it followed this letter through the entire, you know, literally you stayed with the letter as it, and it, was, it went by people and you heard things. And, and it was a sequence that I would have loved to have shot the way that it was written, but it probably would have taken about three and a half weeks. So we ended up... <laughs> having to do it in about three days or two days. And this, and also I just liked it, I liked it being kind of straightforward. When I was a kid, a lot of my heroes were cartoonists. I used to love watching Bob Bastian, who was a Chronicle editorial cartoonist, who then went to a television news program called Newsroom on a KQED Channel 9. And when he, he committed suicide, and I remember the day that they kind of announced on the air that his body had been found and that he had taken his own life. And I remember really feeling oddly betrayed by that because he was definitely somebody that, you know, as a eight-year-old or a nine-year-old, I used to love to watch newsroom. And, and I loved the fact that here was a guy who was sort of sitting by the sidelines who would listen to what the other journalists were talking about, and then at the end of it, he would produce this cartoon. And I think we, my father owned a couple of them. They were just done on newsprint marker and charcoal. They were really beautiful. And I also remember collecting some of Graysmith's. I mean, I just cut them out of the Chronicle and sort of keep them. I loved the line quality, and I loved the idea of people who had to turn something out, had to churn something out day after day, and, and had to have some kind of salient quality. The Zodiac letters, to me, were kind of the most important hook in the movie. They were certainly the biggest hook for me as a kid, the notion that somebody was offering you an insight into their kind of psychological makeup. And there's something about the graphic nature of his writing and the way that his moniker and his, his brand, um, there was something really fascinating about that. We shot this scene, the reading of the letter, we shot it twice. The first time I was framed in a much more omniscient way and when we cut the scene it just didn't work it didn't have you, you didn't follow the letter and you didn't follow the interest of or non-interest of uh, the parties that the letter came in contact with and so that didn't sort of end up in a in jake's hands in the right way so we restaged it we reshot the sequence much to the chagrin of uh you know, round table of very, very talented actors who put up with a lot of my indecision. <laughs> and I I really like this version of it. I really liked the faces and I liked the way that the guys interacted. Now we took, you know, great license has been taken with, you know, the presence of Paul Avery because probably for the most part, Paul Avery would not have been in a, any kind of editorial conference. Um, so we had to take the dramatic license with that in order to get him into the room and uh, and to get him part of the investigation. Paul, 
What? I cover crime in Vallejo. Yeah, I cover crime in Vallejo. Downey is, you know, everybody knows, is truly wonderful. But, but this was the first day that we really kind of got to see what he was going to do with, with Paul. And Avery was a guy that we didn't know much about. I mean, we we talked to Tosky about him. We talked to Graysmith about him. We talked to a couple of other people. But he was kind of an enigma. And um, and when I first talked to Robert about playing him. He said, well, what kind of research can you give me? What can you... And I sort of felt maybe it was more deferential not to to dig too deep into who this guy was and sort of allow it to be Robert. Al's on the phone of the examiner. They got the same letter with a different code. Also, the Times Herald, Christmas, two teenagers on Lover's Lane, both the OA, David Faraday and Betty Jensen. July 4th, darling, Farron and Michael... Mag I think it's Mayhew. Anyway, he lived. She didn't. The murder weapons? Ballistics, everything he said in the letters match. I mean, I think the Times Herald's gonna go with it. The examiner's going, but won't go front page. I say, let's go front page. If he kills 12 people, it's not our fault. I love the, the feeling of the newsroom. And, and, and I remember reading the script the first time and thinking, this is not a serial killer, this is a movie. This is a, it's a newspaper story. And that gradually becomes a story about you know, justice or the obsession with justice and what is justice? Where do you get, where do you, where can you feel good? At what point can you let go? At what point have you got what you need in order to move on? And that's what I liked about the story. You won't keep his name. Morty's? Anyone? Where I'm heading. This is a shot, the, um, the San Francisco Chronicle type on the on the building in the background we actually added, <laughs> and Morty's bar was a was there was a different bar that they frequented that we couldn't use the name of because we depicted a cocaine use in it, and so we couldn't legally use the name of the bar that would have been the actual bar. One of the biggest issues that we had was we wanted to. From a storytelling standpoint, we needed to talk about Graysmith's older son, and we wanted to see him in the in the movie. But of course, the movie opens <laughs> in August, and we decided to, even though there are no schools open in August, we decided to have him drive his kid to school. This is one of the sequences where you see a lot of you know professional-looking people with horn-room glasses, you know pouring over evidence and and uh, bringing their expertise. And probably it was, you know, two guys, three guys in each of these scenes, but we ended up putting like five or six just to make it, just to make the the joke of, you have all the, you have the CIA and the FBI and Office of Naval Intelligence, and then you cut to some guy and his wife and their breakfast nook, and they're the ones who solve it. Guy used to sit there was a great cartoonist, Bob Bastian. Now he's on public television. Some reason. Paul Avery. Uh, Robert Graysmith. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been here nine months. In all probability, um, Avery probably never had this kind of interaction with Graysmith until much later. But um, we liked, again, in terms of telling the story, like the idea of, of Avery sort of seeing a spark and Robert and making the trek across the newsroom to 
the art department to uh, fill him in on this. And I like the idea of him introducing himself, even though Robert's a little chagrined by it because he feels he's already, he's already been introduced to him before. I love that one. <laughs> it often happens. You see that in Hollywood. People come up and go, hi, I'm blah, blah, blah. And say, well, yeah, actually, we've already met. And you don't know whether it's that they didn't have the confidence that you remembered or, <laughs> or you're being guilted or we had to retouch the uh, knuckles of, <laughs> of the scene because um, Jake's hands are very um, hairless and pretty. <laughs> and uh, the double that we had doing a lot of the writing and drawing had... Uh, and much hairier hands, so we went back in to retouch the knuckles on it, so he would, so Jake wouldn't feel like we'd done him a disservice. Oh, what dangerous animal! How do I know that? Paul. Yes, Tim. Editorial now. Very well. Another letter. I don't actually know how much of it makes any sense that they would have, I mean, obviously they would have included Avery in, in any kind of new letter that came in, but I don't know if he would have been one of the, you know, nine faces of the editorial direction of the Chronicle, but from a story standpoint, we needed to include him. We had to retouch this shot in order to get all the graffiti off the bridge, because there's a lot of <laughs> profanity. You know, this used to be the town of Monticello. We took some liberties with this in terms of the setting up of who these characters were. And Cecilia and Brian had dated, but they weren't currently romantically involved. They just happened to be at Berryessa on this day, mostly because they couldn't make it into San Francisco in time. And so they were spending some time by the water. And, and I wanted to have a little moment that kind of talked about they knew each other, but they didn't know each other as well as as maybe the setup would make the audience think. I felt that by having them, you know, cuddled together by the by the side of the lake, that the audience would feel that they were, you know, lovers and that they... Um, but I wanted to have a moment where we realized that they're not as intimate as maybe their physical proximity suggests. There's a great thing here, too, because Patrick was, he had just finished a sandwich just as we started to shoot this, because we only had about three hours where the light was correct from like 3.30 in the afternoon to 6.30 in the evening. And so we started rolling. I said, okay, the light's good. Here we go. And we rolled the cameras. We had two cameras out on this little island. And he stood up and he started going through his lines and he got a little bit of a burp, a little bit of indigestion. He has this little moment where he sort of pauses and touches his stomach and I just thought that seemed so real that somebody would actually kind of <laughs> a moment of indigestion when they see a guy with a, <laughs> a black hood and a 45 automatic. He's a sociology major. Pre-law. When we sent the script to Brian Hartnell, who gave us a lot of insight and, and walked us through exactly what happened that day, um, one of the things that came back, one of the notes that he had, was that uh, Jamie had written that he was a sociology major, and he 
um, explained to us in no uncertain terms that he was a pre-law major and that uh, that was inaccurate. And um, when we got to shooting the scene, um, the text hadn't been changed. For some reason, somebody had an old script. And so when Pell says, who's the actress who plays Cecilia, says he's a sociology major, I had um, Patrick, who plays Brian, correct her <laughs> and say, no, no, actually, no, it's pre-law. And which I thought was kind of amusing. However, it may be sort of emotionally inappropriate. I felt to me like they were nervous and that, and that, but it, it showed us that they weren't, it made them seem like friends or, or, you know, less like they were romantically involved. They didn't know each other that well. And I loved the idea of this little digression in the middle of it. And, and Brad Fisher told me an amusing story. He was sitting behind Brian and his wife when they screened the movie for them. And when the scene came up, um, she says, he's a sociology major. And I believe his Brian's wife turned to him and said, pre-law. And then <laughs> Brian on screen says, pre-law actually. And the, and the Hartnells all laughed, which I thought was... Now, some people find it inappropriate that you would have a moment of laughter in this in this tense setting, but I sort of felt it was appropriate. And was that thing even loaded? It's okay. This is all gonna be okay. Part of the reason we chose to depict the uh, the murders that we, or the attacks that we depicted was these were ones that we had witnesses for and that we could talk to people about. It seemed like Lake Herman, which was the first actual known Zodiac uh, attack, was just something we had. We just had, you know, stains on the ground and white chalk lines, and we didn't have anybody who could actually walk us through it. And it also seemed like the movie really begins with um, the letter, and the letter is really in response to Blue Rock Springs, or it's, or it's, that seems to be the main thrust of the, so that's where it began the movie. They were in a white Volkswagen carbon gear. I'm the one that did it. The thing that's ultimately frightening and compelling about I mean, I think the reason that we still talk about Zodiac or the reason that, still, that Zodiac is still, um, why he still sort of haunts us is, is the letters. It's not really the crimes. The crimes themselves are fairly simple and, and by today's serial killer standards, you know, not, not that uh, grotesque or, or horrible. But the letters are the key. The letters for me were the thing that Again, it was this idea of this ongoing correspondence with somebody who is in process. And you got to see how he, not only the manipulation of the press or the manipulation of the, you know, the public, 
but just his evolution, the evolution of his thinking and how he thought about himself. And so we tried to sort of make that the, the letters the hub of the letters and the letters passing through the Chronicle, the hub of how the story was peeled. That's, that's Count Zaroff. Zaroff? With a Z? There's a time reference in the movie, which is the building of the uh, Transamerica Pyramid. And it begins in the, uh, in the Paul Stein, the Washington and Cherry murder. It begins that whole sequence. It's, well, that's where we start to kind of see, again, that's it's where old San Francisco, or for me, early 60s San Francisco changes into 70s San Francisco. And so it's one of these things that we sort of clock throughout that begins to show this evolution. The cab shot is one of those moments that people seem to really remember in the movie. And, and the idea here was to have this sense of both detachment, you know, God's POV looking down on something that he has no control over, and, uh, and also this way of you're, you're both locked onto what's happening and powerless to change it. Most of the violence in the movie, all the bloodletting, that is to say the stabbing at, at Berryessa, the shooting at, at Blue Rock Springs and the shooting at Washington and Cherry were done digitally because we determined that it was gonna take way too much time to get everybody all bloody and then change their wardrobe clean them all up, and then get them all bloody again. And especially at, at Berryessa, where we only had about three hours of shooting a day. So all of the blood that you see in the movie has been added digitally. The final pullback at Washington and Cherry, when we did the, we built a set in, in Downey, just, this, just the, the curbs and the street itself and the, and the steps, the house across the street. When we did our pullback, we went up, put a technocrane on top of a scaffold that was about three stories high, and we did that crane back. And I decided then that we wanted to uh, see something that framed the lower corner of the frame. And so we added the high tension lines, the power lines, digitally, the kind of humming. And uh, I just got to warn everybody, don't, don't try this shot with real power lines, because if you get a technocrane anywhere near it, <laughs> you're going to have real problems. I just got to sleep. Suspects, Negro, male, adult, waltz on scene. The driving stuff, most of the driving stuff that we did, we did some toes, but for the most part, it's all blue screen. It was just uh, unfeasible to do toe shots. So we shot a lot of plates and we were able to throw the background out of focus because we certainly couldn't go to Geary Street and, and put all period cars in. That would have been too insane. I'm going to run to it. So Washington and Cherry. Washington and Cherry is, uh, you know, in Zodiac lore, it's very famous. Um, it's an important turning point in the case because it's the first time he seems to be killing in response to something other than whatever his drive has been up until this point. It's not a lover's lane killing. It's not a. It's not couples. 
it's not, it's as impersonal as anything that he's responsible for. And it seems to be just a publicity stunt. It seems to be that he's taken his wet work to, you know, the city and has snuffed out a life at a, you know, no, it's not a busy crossroad, but it's certainly a, a well-populated. As you can see by the scene, there are, you know, there are windows, you know, within 60 feet, 75 feet of, of the murder of Paul Stein. And there's a chance, you know, in, in all of this where that somebody's going to hear him. So it is brazen and it's, and it's bold and it's designed to be a real kind of fuck you to uh, the people who are hunting him. And it was a very difficult sequence to get the approval to shoot because we had to go to the homeowners association and talk to them about tying up this corner for five nights of shooting. In the end, it was wholly impractical to shoot there. And we ended up building this crossroad and putting up blue screens. And in, we were actually able to kind of recreate the period better by, by doing it completely, by faking it. And I think that in the end, uh, the, the work is so good. Eric Barber and his guys did such an amazing job that I, I think that it flows right with the rest of the movie. And I think that people really um, are taken, you know, they're transported. And it's very, very, I mean, when you talk to Armin Pelissetti and David Toski who came down the nights we were shooting and they, uh, they blessed it. Said it was extremely realistic in terms of what that night looked like. Now it's a little bit brighter by, <laughs> I mean, it's brighter because it has to be brighter for the movies, but you know, it's a pretty dark scene as far as movies go. Harris Evitas, who's one of the more fearless cinematographers you'll ever meet, lit this entire scene with, I think it was pretty much two 2Ks. And we decided at the last minute, it had been designed to be five very kind of static kind of tableaus that they would walk out of one and into the next one and we would pan them. And, but we were going to keep the camera very, very static. And at the end of, I think it was like two days before we were destined to shoot this scene, I was driving along and I thought, you know what, it's the only time in the movie where where we're at a crime scene with somebody who's trying to kind of glean what's happened. And so it would be fine to follow them around and follow them handheld. And so I remember calling Digital Domain and talking to Eric and talking to Ed Ulbrich. I said, you know, we're going to do it pretty much like we discussed, except it's all going to be handheld. <laughs> and I heard the phone drop on the other end and they kind of, their voices squeaked and they kind of said, oh, no problem. We can do it. Yeah. It looked like they were drunk and fighting. Yeah. And he had a rag. He came around the side of the car and he was wiping stuff. Did you get a chance to see his face? I did. Well, sort of. Do, do you remember what he looked like? Mm, normal. Yeah. Normal. So I don't know how Carol Fisher screamed. I don't know how she handled the the um, <laughs> the bloody shirt, but we sort of assumed that it would be <laughs> it would be kind of a big deal. There are people who take exception to the fact that she handles the 
letter, and at this point she would probably know better. And probably she did, but I, I wanted it to be sort of matter-of-fact and that it didn't really explain itself as to what it was until she'd read a little bit of the letter. In the shot outside where you see the car pull up, you see the bus in the background. Again, that's a gasoline-powered bus that we, you know, not only added the sky back into and the wires, but we also put the, um, the little stalks that that uh, attach the top of the bus to the power cables. Right there, bus. There's your rag the kids talked about. So you got in the front seat to tear off a piece of the shirt? Is this uh, on the record? What do you think? It confirms the Vallejo and Napa killings. Gets worse. Robert, you have a deadline? What does he mean it gets worse? John Terry and John Getz were um, the sort of warring <laughs> um, publisher and editor you know, we had this sort of idea that that uh, it was hard to kind of dramatically show the, the hierarchical structure of the chronicle. So I like the idea that you have two guys who basically come to the same conclusions but get there by very different ways. And I love how John Getz is a phenomenally talented guy, you know, has all of these like little moments of subtlety where he's quietly rolling his eyes at decisions that are made. This is seen um, in the background. There's television, and you see a, a young reporter up there from KCRA, Sacramento, doing his report on Zodiac, and that's Spencer Michaels, who is a friend of my father's, so, and a friend of mine, who's somebody I've known most of my life, and we found this old footage of him. We showed it to him. He didn't even recognize himself. <laughs> he's probably in his 30s here, and he's uh, reporting on, I think it was... He's talking about San Francisco and the problems San Francisco is having with the divorce rate and the alcoholism and now Zodiac. And I thought it was kind of an interesting look at yellow TV journalism at the time. All of you to please keep this confidential. Just go about your daily business. Thank you. This bus stop, I chose this location because <laughs> I used to live in San Anselmo on a street called Park Way, and there was a bus on Sequoia. There's a bus stop on Sequoia Street, which ran behind, and it was it was a little hill that came up to it, and it looked just like this. And so this was, this is actually in uh, Los Angeles, and we managed to find this one location that didn't have too many palm trees, and uh, so we shot that in L.A., now, Sherwood Morrill. Sherwood Morrill uh, and Philip Baker Hall's portrayal of Sherwood Morrill. I mean, he was very, very professional, very renowned and and uh, lauded expert in his field. But um, I always felt, in looking at the Zodiac letters, it seemed oddly inconsistent. And there were certainly things about Morrill's stance on the case that I know that Tosky and and uh, Armstrong had issue with, and um, but it was never our intent to. Uh, I mean, he was a obviously extremely capable man. We have to release the bus threat. It, it'll screw us. We're already screwed. We just went from routine cabbie shooting to mass murderer targets kids.
the fun in shooting a period movie like this was doing the period newscasts because when you actually look back on and you pull reference for this stuff and you start to look at it, it's just insane how far technologically the presentation of the news has come. I mean, when we looked at, when we had stuff from the late 60s, you know, with Eric Severide and where they had slide projectors behind <laughs> screens with a guy at a desk and two or three black telephones as though the news was coming right into him immediately before he went on the air and he was he had just gotten off the phone um and i mean it was so absurd i mean you and trying to kind of you know couch the notion for the audience that that the world has really changed in the last 35 to 40 years um, it was one of the more interesting sort of fact-finding excursions. This is Dermot Mulroney, who's one of my favorite people in the world, <laughs> who agreed to come in and play this little part where he, I think he has like eight lines in the whole movie, and he has to wear like a little fat suit because he's actually in amazingly great shape. So I wanted him to have a waistline like mine, so we made up a little fat suit for him so he could. And he, <laughs> he's, he's in every scene. He's like kind of got his thumbs in his belt line and is kind of sticking his little fat suit out, making people know that he's a guy who lives life behind a desk. Marty Lee, who, who's the character, that, the guy that he's playing, was actually in pretty phenomenal shape and, and was a, a guy that both Tusky and Armstrong had nothing but great things to say about. He was a very, very well-respected police officer. When I met Bill Armstrong, we flew up to Sacramento to talk to him, and we sort of laid out for him what the film was going to be about. And, you know, he had definitely moved off Lee Allen. He had given up that this was the guy. And uh, But he gave us amazing insight. And I hadn't thought of Tony Edwards um, until I met Bill Armstrong, and I, and I came away from the meeting feeling that he was just so decent. I needed to find somebody who was as decent as, you know, Bill was extremely polite and, and politic about things that he felt that they had failed at or things that he felt that they'd done right and hadn't been, uh, hadn't been followed up on or they didn't have the technology to go further with. But he was, all of these guys were strangely, um, I mean, because you, you would expect if you're making a movie about a case like this, you would, ex you would expect them to sort of want to have history rewritten just a little bit or have things, you know, and there was never, I never for once got a feeling from Robert or, or Brian Hartnell or, or, um, or Dave Toskey or Bill Armstrong that, that they wanted anything other than, look, here it is, warts and all. This is what we thought at the time. Here's the mistake that we made. We should never have done X, Y, or Z. But, you know, and there was this real sense of, it wasn't that they wanted to rewrite history. It's like they just wanted one more shot at being able to go over this stuff. They wanted just a little bit more time, a little more funding, a little more support. This kind of palpable sense of wanting to have seen this be tied up. And it was a, it was a really, it wasn't sad. I don't recall feeling like, oh, I feel so bad for them. I felt very much like um, we needed to do them justice because they still felt this is the one that got away and this is the one that didn't deserve to get away. 
So I didn't care so much about how the actors looked in the parts. I really wanted it to be about their persona and, and what they, the kind of energy that they put off. And um, I had no idea who was going to play Bill Armstrong. I think it was Lynn Harris and or Lorraine Mayfield who suggested Tommy Edwards. And of course I knew his work as an actor, but I also knew him as uh, as a parent and and as a neighbor. His his son went to preschool with my daughter and he as an actor he's like a he's like a, a great point guard. He just makes things happen socially, makes things happen. He's he's such a great assist. And so when we finally contacted him and he said he wanted to do it, it kind of put most of my concerns about where the casting was going to head in the movie. Um, I finally kind of slept better when I'd gotten Jake and I'd gotten Mark and I'd gotten Tony and Robert. And it sort of all kind of coalesced at that moment. And I thought, this is going to be good. Water theory? What? Geographically, every attack takes place near a body of water Those or water, your water name, Lake Berryessa, mm -hmm. Blue Rock Springs, Lake Wash, Herman. Bington. Downey's wonderful in this scene. He's so professional and indifferent. <laughs> I knew Robert, and I knew, and you know, he's obviously a stellar performer and an amazing kind of live actor. But the overall concern that I had for this character was that he had to be extremely verbal. He had to be somebody who was, you know, it wasn't that he was air quoting himself all the time, but he was, you know, I, I felt to me like Avery was, we talked about this a little bit, he's kind of a George Sanders character. He's, he's, he's a guy who is enjoying, you know, his, he's writing the rough draft in real time for you. And he's also editing it as he's, as he's saying it, he's going, oh, that's good. And um, that one's, he's sort of marking for posterity his rough draft as he goes. Single male cab driver on Washington and Cherry doesn't fit. Doesn't fit. So, why does Zodiac kill him? This movie is, the beginning of the casting of this movie was um, over one weekend. I was, I was talking to Jennifer Aniston about... <laughs> We were talking about movies and actors that she had worked with that she just loved. And Jake Gyllenhaal was one of them. And Mark Ruffalo was the other one. And she was telling me just how unbelievably talented these guys were. And when I had, when we'd sort of finally sorted out how we were going to make this movie and, and where we were going to make this movie, it sort of struck me that I really loved The Good Girl and I really loved Donnie Darko. And I thought Jake would be perfect for Robert Graysmith. And I was trying to think of an actor for Tosky. And, and Tosky's, he's, uh, there's a real sense of warmth to him that I don't think comes across in everything. In all the clippings that you read about Dave Tosky, it's kind of this like bogus super cop kind of nonsense. But there's something about him that was so um, warm. And I was talking to Jen about this and she told me about her experience and work with Mark Ruffalo and I'd never met him I'd just seen his work and so I sent him the script and uh, I had one meeting with him and just felt so at home with uh, who he was and then when we went into rehearsals we did a, a read through um, at my office with everybody that we could get I don't think Brian Cox had been cast at that point 
But um, with everybody that we, you know, we had, I think we had 25 or 30 people in the conference room. And walking out of it, everybody was like, Mark Ruffalo is, he's just so live and human and, and real and so not a cop, you know. And, and, and I'd seen Collateral and I thought, he seemed oddly out of step in that movie because he's such a, such a, he's such a person. And, and I, and I felt like he had been sort of hampered or something in the, but, um, but walking out of that first read through, I thought to myself, this is going to be just fascinating to watch. And he had this voice and this gait and this mannerism, the, the mannerisms of David Tosky. And there was a moment in time where I kind of thought to myself, I got to be careful that this doesn't become caricature because it's kind of like, um, like I'd been involved in this movie, The Lords of Dogtown, and I'd met Skip Engblom, and I couldn't figure out who to cast for Skip Engblom. I actually wanted Donald Logue to play Skip, and I'd gone to see the the final movie and saw Heath Ledger play him, and it's it's such a perfect Skip Engblom. It's kind of astounding the the just everything they have. but and yet. For those who don't know Skip Engblom, it can be it can be off-putting. You know, people can kind of go, "Well, nobody nobody really acts like that." And it's like, "Well, no, actually, somebody there is somebody uh, who acts like that." And so I was very concerned that that what Mark was doing initially would be caricature. And it was funny to watch him. Like his first two takes, he would you'd see him getting kind of, he would begin to sort of assimilate what it is he had to do, and he began to sort of physically apply it to what he was doing. And then by take three or four, you were seeing this full, this guy that you just, you, this person. And, and, and it was so, I learned so much watching him apply the external to what he was doing internally. And it was such a pleasure. It's a long, difficult process and ineffective with these Jake was so good with this um, kid who played his son. His name was Jack. And he was so, um, you know, for a guy who's, you know, <laughs> doesn't have kids, he was, he was so uh, attentive and so helpful, obviously having, you know, acted as, as a young adult. <laughs> I kill. I don't get them. That is fucked up. You want to live, don't you? This is a really interesting scene because all these people are looking at blue, te you know, televisions that are just showing blue screens, and there's nothing going on. This is this is one of those scenes. I love this scene. It's just total swamp gas because it's everybody just pretending to have eye contact with something and pretending to see something and have something change them or move them or excite them in some way. It's just total cinema. You won't get hurt if you talk to me. You're not going to the gas chamber. I wouldn't think that. Brian Cox came to us um, late in the process. We were trying to figure out who could play Melvin Belli. Now, Melvin Belli is a, um, very, he's a very famous San Francisco figure. He's part of the old guard. And he was a very fascinating guy. I'd, I'd seen him in... You know, I'd seen him in Gimme Shelter, and I'd seen him in some documentaries. I'd never, I never saw him on Star Trek, um, which is something we reference in the in the KGO sequence. But I'd never seen him do that, and, and we were trying to kind of figure out who's an actor who could carry the kind of. There was a certain grandiosity, but there was also this focus. You know, he was he had this ability to sort of concentrate beyond 
you know, you could see what, you know, somebody told me that Perry Mason had been based on him and, and, certain, and he was very much like Raymond Burry, had that kind of weight and gravitas and, and yet he was a showman. He was, you know, there was, there was no question about it. He was, and, and so I think it was Loray when Loray said, what about Ray Mayfield who cast the movie? Um, said, what about Brian Cox? It was like, oh my God, are you kidding? It was like getting hit in the face with lumber. You're just like, of course. And so we called him and had a conversation with him over the phone and he decided to come and play with us. My, 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 you fellows certainly know how to put on a secret meeting. I remember very specifically, I was in second grade and um, I was on the playground at Isabel Cook grade school. I remember kids in my class discussing in the tan bark box, <laughs> discussing that their fathers and, and or mothers were staying home to watch the Jim Dunbar show because the Zodiac was going to call in. It was one of the one of the things I remember very vividly that day. And we didn't really know much about Zodiac. It had all been very much blown out of proportion. You know, there's apparently some mass murder and mass grave up at Marina Headlands. I mean, it had been, you know, this is a guy who climbed down from trees with black cape on. and But I do remember that day so, so well. There's a point in time in the movie where we got very fed up with shooting this set. And I remember a day shooting this sequence in particular where we were kind of like, are we ever going to get out of this Chronicle set? This is a nice scene. I like how this was laid out. This is uh, Jamie Vanderbilt's uh, notion of of how to kind of kickstart the second, the beginnings of, of Graysmith's obsession. I like the idea that there was this moment in time where um, everybody had kind of, where the new letter had come and everybody had stopped what they were doing. And they'd all sort of piled into this room to kind of be part of whatever was to come. I enjoy needling the blue pigs. Hey, blue pig, I was in the park. You were using fire trucks to mask the sound of your cruising prowl cars. Hey, pig, doesn't it rile you up to have your nose rubbed in your boo-boos? And, of course, the, the presentation of the first, the bomb idea, which was a big, you know, which is an evolution for, again, for Zodiac. He'd gone away from stragglers and lovers' lanes. One gallon of stove oil, dump a few bags of gravel on top. It's okay. a bomb. Okay, we gotta call the army and see if this science experiment could actually work. There was something very intriguing to me about, especially in San Francisco, which was which is so often thought of as, as this sort of hippie, free love, drug culture, stronghold, that that the image of the Zodiac was this crew-cut, white-walled, horn-rimmed glasses guy who looked like a postal clerk. And there was something about that that was intriguing to me, the notion that, that you know, the summer of love was in some way squelched by this guy who couldn't have been more uh, a more conservative symbol. He was very 50s. There was a kind of very leave-it-to-beaver kind of image of this of the serial killer he was not a long-haired fringe jacket wearing charles manson he was he was this extremely straight-laced and conservative
Aqua Velva was the aftershave that my father <laughs> used to use. So when somebody said, what should this drink be called? I think Downey, for 15 takes or something, we called it the Blue Dragoon. And then I said, no, I'll just call it an Aqua Velva. I love this scene between these two guys. I love, I love the way that, I love the playfulness of Downey. The here's, here's where you, you know, this scene where you don't direct Robert too much, except to make sure that he, that he doesn't swallow every consonant. <laughs> you just want to get out of his way, and 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 again, it's such a rare gift that somebody's able to to make playful and silly and and experiential. Um, what's ostensibly a lot of exposition, you know, and that's, that's for me acting in, in service of, you know, cause this could be a very, very dry and boring scene. And, and it's lovely how, how both these guys, you know, look like they're trying to find a way into each other's thought processes. He suggests are found in this site. But there are non-letter symbols because there's all these medieval ones. I thought they looked medieval too. But then I found a code written in the Middle Ages. Guess what it's called? The Zodiac Alphabet. Jesus. I love that goofy smile that, that Jake has and that way he's sort of proud of himself, but doesn't look like he has a lot of control over his presentation of that. <laughs> it just seems very real. This was a scene that we put back in the movie just before we were to the lock picture and it had been taken out. It had been out for months. But I really felt that we needed to get an idea of Toski at home. I felt like we had him as a cop and we had, and it, also the scene sets up the whole basement for future use notion. But to me, that wasn't as important as seeing a guy at his dining room table um, pouring over stuff that he's already seen a hundred times. Yeah, sure. This is a map painting that Melvin Belli's house, which was based on a photograph of Melvin Belli's house in Pacific Heights. And originally we had a map painting that showed the Transamerica Pyramid under construction, halfway built, but it was a little too distracting. People's eyes kept going to that rather than to the Tudor manse. difficult to hold it in check, and I'm afraid I will lose control again and take my ninth and possibly tenth victim. Melvin. We may have gone a little too far in, in, in painting Melvin as a as a blowhard, but um, I like the idea. There was a story that Bill Armstrong told us. It actually took place at his uh, town home, his penthouse, uh, that was actually right down the street, or actually up the hill from the from the Transamerica building, which would of course been across the street from his offices. Um, but. Uh, there was a story that Armstrong told us about. They received this this call on on some either Thanksgiving or around Christmas at some point, and they'd rushed over because Melvin Bell. I was I was sure that there was a sniper on a on a building across the street, and uh, some some people had seen a man and they thought he had a rifle, and so um, Bill and Dave Toski rushed over and. and there was a dinner party going on, and they were let in, and they had a little conference momentarily with Melvin, and then they were sort of 
paraded through this party and introduced to people and and Armstrong said he began to become he began to be aware of the fact that they were sort of um they'd become sort of de facto dinner guests and in this in in Belli's sort of wanting to show show off how responsive the police were to his discomfort and um so I like that notion of, of these guys being summoned to this place and, and we fudged it a little bit and it happens with the, now happens with the letter. So Kathleen Johns, Kathleen Johns. I'm not so sure how much I believe Kathleen Johns is a part of this whole mythology. I was certainly part of the mythology. I'm not so sh sure Kathleen Johns picked up Zodiac or Zodiac picked up Kathleen Johns. I kind of, um, I don't know. It seems very strange. Uh, at one point in the making of the movie, we were lucky enough to, both Brad Fisher and I, and we went to Portland, I think, to talk to Mike Kelleher, who's a really, really interesting man. And he's very well versed in, in Zodiacology, <laughs> Zodiology. Um, and he makes a very compelling, made a very compelling case for including Kathleen Johns. And Kathleen Johns was really the end of Zodiac's ability to kill or that it was a, the next evolution. And I think it's an interesting psychological look at the specter, the myth. I just don't know how much I buy I mean, I do think it's odd that he doesn't write and talk about this, maybe because it's a failure. I don't know why it's a failure. I mean, maybe it's Cecilia Shepard's proximity to Brian Hartnell that makes it possible for him to dispatch Cecilia Shepard, and, and maybe it's the um, fact that Kathleen Johns is pregnant and has a baby with her um, that makes it impossible for him to dispatch Kathleen Johns. I don't know. It was a very... It's a tough call. We had to kind of take a neutral stance on it. The incident in real life is an unbelievably harrowing and compelling one where they drove around literally for hours and he kept repeating his little mantra of, before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. And, and she jumps from the, at one point he goes, uh, the driver, whoever he was, the, the abductor, um, drives up a, an off-ramp onto the freeway. I think it's the five. And um, she's able to jump from the car. And it certainly seemed we wanted to shoot. It certainly would have been. But I just couldn't figure out a way to put it into the narrative. Um, it just seemed like it was a dangling participle and it would have given it too much weight in order for it to have been dismissed later on um, in the scene with uh, Avery and Graysmith in the stacks. So, again, maybe it was an error on all of our parts, but I felt dramatically like the only things that we could include were his terrorizing of her and then her subsequent being found by the side of the road. Boys go around helping people in the night. When I'm done with them, they don't need much help. 
before I kill you, I'm going to throw your baby out the window. This is an interesting shot because I think um, the high praise to Digital Domain. But we, we went out to Camarillo and we closed down a, a quarter of a mile of road and we jackknifed a, a truck and we put Ernie Sky by the side of the road and we got a, a 66 Ranchero and we put the camera in the back truck bed of it and we drove up and we just, because the camera's tethered, because we had all kinds of issues with the where we could hide the recorder and how much light we could get on it and whether or not we could top light the truck with one of those helium balloons. We, the shot ended up being, we, we couldn't get the car and subsequently the camera far enough away from the truck to really have it sort of appear in the distance. So we ended up doing the shot digitally. We ended up doing it as a composite and we shot it all on soundstage. And I think that the, the best compliment that's been paid that is that when Harris Savitas, who shot, shot the movie, went into a timing session, he saw that and he said to the Peter Mavamatis, the post-production supervisor, oh, God, I remember that shot. That was just hellish, shooting that. And uh, he didn't realize that it was a composite. So when we told him, he was like, that's just fucking crazy. This is a montage that was put together by... Angus Wall and A52, and um, this was never really designed to be this elaborate, or it never occurred to me that it could be this elaborate, and I knew I wanted to do a montage with the writings. I needed to get the letters in, I needed to get the masthead, and I needed to talk about the chronicles, like, becoming the clearinghouse for all things, all communications Zodiac-related. And we knew that we wanted to have this montage, and we wanted to have a wonderful piece of music in here, and this montage was put together by... <laughs> it had little or nothing to do with me. And I, I love reading in reviews where people say, oh, and then, of course, Fincher can't contain himself. He has to go and do this big... <laughs> I remember just looking at it and going, wow, that's really beautiful. That's great. And I'll take all the credit for it. But really, I had nothing to do with it. This is a wonderful Downeyism. He had this little bar trick that he wanted to do <laughs> in the scene and he showed it to me he said here's what the thing is you have these two straw or these three straws and you balance them and you say okay now I'm gonna how do I pick up all three with one straw and he showed me this trick and I he said can I do that and I said absolutely <laughs> 26 takes later he was like beside himself he was so frustrated and so fed up because we needed it to match now from the master shot to the coverage and so one of those great little moments of inspiration turns into the actor's albatross. Okay, look at this letter again, the part about Kathleen Jones. Tell me what facts he gives. A woman and her baby abducted. Mm -hmm. So this sequence, you know, again, reading about Kathleen Jones, the fact that Zodiac doesn't mention her for so long always seems very suspect to me. And I thought that there was a compelling case laid out for the notion that Zodiac. I mean, part of the beauty of his was his ability to obfuscate, and 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 by taking credit for these other things, he was able to build a much bigger myth, and and also put himself in places where, had he ever been caught, he probably would have. He would have had some. Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just 
justification, Department of Justification for the Kathleen Johns. But I, I never bought the Kathleen Johns thing. I just thought she was probably extremely, I mean, obviously been through something incredibly harrowing and, and the fact that the America's Most Wanted poster was right behind the interrogating officer's head. Bobby, you almost look disappointed. Chief's pulling everybody off buses. This is a wonderful scene. These guys are, I love the idea of Toski and Armstrong going back to the scene of the Stein murder. We shot this scene, we shot a f first pass of that scene in San Francisco. And it's funny, it just didn't look like the same place. It didn't look like the same house. So we ended up redoing it in Downey with a, against blue screen. Does it ever bother you that people call you shorty? Does it bother you that people call you retard? Nobody calls me that. Ah, the retard stuff. The retard, this was a joke that Jamie and I kind of concocted. This was meant, this was never meant to be any disrespect to Robert, and there is no actual foundation for um, Avery. It was just a way of kind of humanizing his, I, I want, we wanted to continue to find a way to, to solidify his outsider status and also just make him insecure about where he fit in this, you know, in the hierarchy at, at, at the Chronicle. Perhaps it's cruel and it's never meant to be. Come here, it's not a piece of bloody shit. Sir, fuck! Oh, fucking crap! I feel it in my bones. You ache to know my name, and so I'll clue you in. The card. Um, the card was a necessary function of having to get uh, Avery to a place where he got, where Avery got a gun. And um, in reality, the bloody shirt arrived in another uh, letter that was sent to the Chronicle, but we needed to kickstart this idea that we needed to make it positive for the audience and absolutely unequivocal that he had been communicated with by the Zodiac. And so again, a little bit of dramatic license. Riverside, I'm gonna drive down to see him tonight. You wanna tag along? Uh, no, I have a, a date. Really? Who is this guy? He wishes to remain anonymous. I wish to remain infamous. So we're gonna get along great. I'm looking for a Melanie. Yes, it's the Thank you. Ah, Chloe. This is a really, really talented actress who, you know, came in to play an incredibly thankless role <laughs> and did it so, and was so lovely in it. She was a real breath of fresh air whenever we, whenever we shot with her because, you know, she, we didn't have many days with Chloe, but she was so, she's so real. She has this great kind of, droll sense of humor in this deadpan delivery that she, and she just reminded me of all those girls that lived across the street from me when I was you know 12 and 13 years old that you never quite pay attention to and then one day you kind of go wow 
she's sort of stunning and interesting. And, and she put these glasses on and that, <laughs> that little red pendant, heart pendant, and it was just like that girl's from 1973. I'm working on, do you know the Zodiac? Yeah. I'm working with, do you know who Paul Avery is? Sounds kind of familiar. He's the writer that the Zodiac threatened. Oh, yeah, I saw that on TV. Well, I'd work near him, and, and he's going down tonight to track an, an anonymous tipster down in Riverside. One of the things that we didn't count on was that it was when Jake's holding that newspaper over his head, all of the ink on the paper is getting wet, and so his hands are completely black by take three. I think we shot like 14 takes of the master. And we kind of couldn't get his hands clean enough, so we always, and I couldn't decide whether to make something out of that or, because he does shake her hand and you see his hand, his hand comes out and it's, <laughs> he looks like a mechanic or something. And yes, I have been told that vodka with cream sauce did not exist as a uh, as an Italian dish until the late 80s. But uh, being a gourmand, I let it slide. Maybe give us another minute. Do you have any change? Oh, wait, no, wait, hold on. No, that's a penny. This is a particularly hard scene because he's you know, they're very different from take to take and trying to kind of consolidate. And I, and I normally hate going from close-up to close-up, but the overs just didn't match. And they were they were sort of, uh, they were brutal in terms of where the eye travel, where you pick things up. But, uh, but they're so engaging, the faces, so it seemed to me like we could get away with it. I love this scene. This is originally designed to be a much bigger deal um, and we follow Downey. It was a big kind of non-scare moment where he meets an informant, and we shot it a couple of different times. But it just didn't have its place in the movie, and, and we had to. I mean, the movie was long as it was, extremely long as it was, and uh, it didn't seem like it seemed like a moment where we could lose a bit of... But I like the idea that he goes to... <laughs> I, li I ultimately like the way that it's structured, that he goes down there, we see him, there's something, and then something kind of oddly not right about where he's going to meet this guy. In actuality, he went to a house, it was completely dark, and met some guy there, but it was too much like, <laughs> like the informant in Chinatown, so we didn't do that. I love her read in this. She's, there's 14 or 15 takes, and she's different in each one of them. They're all great when she says, this is the most interesting date I've ever been on. It's, it's not sad or pathetic. It's just kind of like, well, no, I like this kind of stuff. There's a sort of Nancy Drew quality. <laughs> Getting Robert to turn and walk into a close-up and say that line, he was so... He wanted to crawl out of his skin. He hated it so much, the, the notion of ending on a close-up. And I don't disagree, it's tough. But um, he did a great job with it. You know, I think he doesn't feel like 
natural presentation. It seemed staged. And uh, so getting him to do that was <laughs> a little leg pulling to you. What I knew in my gut, Ron, the handwriting matches Zodiac's. How do you get the evidence out Ruffalo had all these all these great little things that he kept putting in because Toski at one point developed a, an ulcer so he has all these scenes where he's like taking the tomatoes out of sandwiches and he's chewing he's got Pepto-Bismol and he's chewing like chewing Pepto-Bismol like you know mints and stuff so he has all these things that are constantly happening and I love that he's he's always got some little stomach ailment thing going on good to see you now all due respect can someone explain to me why I'm reading about breaks in this case in the Chronicle instead of getting calls from you we got screwed Dave, come on. You do get your name in the paper a lot. People talk. I don't ever talk about an open investigation, period. Okay, Ken? This is a funny scene. I love this scene. It didn't really happen this way. I mean, it was more that they saw him and he kind of waved, but we um, had him come up and say, hey, man, can I catch a ride with you guys? Zach Grenier, who I'd worked with on uh, Fight Club, is a wonderful actor and so much, he's just so droll, so much fun. He, um, he agreed to come in and do the Mel Nikolai. This is a scene that we cut. Um, I really liked it. It was very, it's a silly San Francisco joke, but, but I like the fact that, that you have these cops and with long hair and plaid jackets coming to see the guys in Riverside who are, you know, <laughs> looking at them like, there they are from the pervert city. Now, Riverside, I don't know. I don't put a lot of credence in Riverside. It doesn't seem like it's part of the whole thing to me. I don't, I don't, but I liked it. I felt it was important to, I mean, if it is a red herring, then I, to me, I think it's presented appropriately. Again, there were so many dead ends that led to this case being spinning out of control, uh, the investigation spinning out of control. And this is one of them. This is, uh, I think that the whole Sherry Jo Bates uh, and, and Avery's attribution of this to Zodiac, I think was a real, it may have derailed this case for all time. These are what Sherwood Morrill matched to the Zodiac letters? Hmm. These in the desktop, done. This was found a couple of months later by a janitor in RCC storage. And again, you know, trying to get back to the graphic presentation of, of writings and, and, you know, this was a, a prop that had to be made and had to look just like um, the actual desktop, which we had photographs of, but we didn't actually see. Um, Hope Parrish, who did all the props, did a lovely, lovely job with all of the... Uh, the letters that were so meticulously recreated. They're beautiful, stunning, and, and this desktop as well. I also told them we don't think this is Zodiac. Okay, wait a minute. You don't think this is Zodiac? We got a guy. And again, we don't know what was said in this actual meeting. We we have we have David's remembrance of it, and when we talked to Ken, Norlo, who was wonderful, gave us so much insight and so much of his time, and. But, you know, again, this is a fairly subjective <laughs> representation of it. Now, that's something he's done before. Look, now you have everything we have. But in my opinion, you guys came south for nothing. Proobar, gentlemen, Proobar. I don't care what he says. This was filmed in Culver City, 
we ended up having to do a lot of digital work to uh, take out satellite dishes, which turned out to be, we, when we go to scout locations, we'd say, how much is it going to cost to take down those satellite dishes? So it was like $40,000 to pay people off, take, send people up on the roofs, take it. So we ended up, you know, painting them out digitally, each frame. And Riverside's told me I'm on a slate. I love this. This was a scene that, you know, I really, again, it's kind of created because I think that Toski had this frustration toward Avery and they did have a falling out, but it didn't happen out in the parking lot right in front of the Riverside PD. We just, we placed it here because it seemed like a good splitting off point. And Downey did, came up with this by himself, this whole getting this notepad swatted away and then pardon while I retrieve my nonsense which I thought was great we had many more scenes in the actual uh, in the first draft where we really saw the building of these scrapbooks you know Graysmith's attention to his collection and there's a Bob Wagner the AD and I have this rule that we never ever want to see when, when extras are hurrying, we never want to see anyone look at their watch. So we shot this shot and Ruffalo comes running up the stairs and he checks his watch and Bob looked at me and I said, no, 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 when, when Mark Ruffalo does it, <laughs> it works. Zodiac didn't cut off any of the victim's hands. Are you sure? Yes, sir. Travis and I work here thought this was very funny, the, the notion of having all these kinds of people who were so suspect and then leading into the, the um, Don Chaney, Sandy Panzarella meeting in Torrance. I like the idea of couching. There's literally, I have to meet with every lunatic who's come out of the woodwork to uh, offer their theories. And so it's all sort of culminates in this guy telling you this incredibly hard to believe story that it's all been laid out for him by Lee Allen. Call himself Zodiac to mess with him. Lee liked messing with people. You're positive he said Zodiac? Yeah. I thought it was a stupid name, so I told him. He got up all upset and said, I don't care what you think. I thought about it a long time, and that's the name I'm going to use. Did you feel like he'd been. Had an interesting. Um, meeting with Don Chaney, who seems, he's a guy who, he's just not a bullshitter. He doesn't seem, he seems so credible. And the way he tells it to you, and of course, things that he says are so, you know, it's so hard to, it's hard to believe. And yet when he tells it to you, you kind of go, you know, most homicides are solved by somebody dropping a dime on somebody else or somebody finally telling a friend or saying something in a bar and, and so that aspect of it seems very believable but again then the, you know the New Year's Day story was it was such an incredible thing that I really wanted to meet with Cheney just to look him in the eye just to see whether I thought he was a lunatic or, and I didn't I, I he was extremely forthcoming and and seemed incredibly honest again that's really just part of the circumstantial case it's all it's all we have. Then it is circumstantial, and we know that. But it is, you know, ultimately it is Robert's story and David's story and what they believed. 
He checked. He did. First recorded contact with the police department about Allen was uh, in Pomona, January 10th, 1970. He just got lost in the shuffle. Did Cheney have anything against Allen? Did Allen screw his wife or anything? We're going to do a full background check, but I got to tell you, I like this guy. So let's pull some handwriting samples. Hi. I talked to Sherwood. He got the samples. What are you having? It's one of those great moments where you, you have an idea for a scene and you know you're gonna you're gonna need coverage and the guy's gotta eat and you go, Oh man, this is gonna be a nightmare and then you come in, you shoot the master and the master's so good and the timing of it works so well you just go, Well that goes in the movie, that's fine, we'll move on. We don't need close ups of anybody, we'll be okay. Touching polite euphemism. So what do you wanna do? Make some phone calls. Are you done with the price? Go ahead. Did you and Mr. Cheney have a chance to look at the copies of the Zodiac letters we sent you? Yeah. Some of this stuff is pretty creepy. Yeah, but we know. I mean, creepy like Lee. I mean, he, he misspells words like that. He thinks it's funny. Poor Tony. I think, he, I think he probably had a telephone to his ear for about six and a half weeks. <laughs> On the shooting of this movie. So many scenes where he has to be hearing something that's being read to him just off camera and he's responding. In everyday life, Alan uses his left hand. Job There's a real sense of, uh, to me, in, in this scene especially, of, and, and, and in the latter scene that we've put back into the movie, but this, the, the triangle of Martin Lee and David Tusk and Bill Armstrong, there's this real sense of them, it's like they... They want to believe and they don't want to believe. They want to keep that distance and they want to be, you know, they don't want to get sucked in and yet you, they're so hopeful about finding some answer. The interrogation scene, the mat shot that opens the sequence is actually from Point Richmond and it's a standard oil plant in, uh, in Richmond. When I was a kid, I, I think it was in the late 60s, it may have been in the early 70s, when the oil companies wanted to be perceived of as less ecologically destructive and uh, I remember the storage containers were painted these sort of rainbow colors so we had Matt World go and do a matte painting we actually moved the bridge the bridge would actually be off to the left <laughs> that scene but we moved it so it seemed more like like you were hired you were further north in the bay Sergeant Jack Mullinax we're investigating the Zodiac murders in San Francisco and Vallejo please sit down The interrogation scene is an interesting one because, again, it's it's such a fulcrum dramatically for for Armstrong and Toski, and it's the really kind of the only time you have any real FaceTime with Arthur Lee Allen, and we had looked around for actors to play Lee, and we'd looked at non-actors, we looked at um, people who just had the same physical kind of type and trying to find somebody who had... I had a, a videotape that George Bowert had um, who was one of our um, kind of professional advisors or, or uh, technical advisors. And, he, and we looked at this interrogation of, uh, of Lee that had taken place in the late 80s, I think, maybe the early 90s. And John Carroll Lynch, who, who plays Lee 
is not really doing an impersonation of him. It's not really, he's sort of doing, he's, he's created a new thing. And, and we talked about sort of what that would be. And how, but Lee is described, you know, it's funny when we showed the film to Sandy and uh, Panzarella and Don Chaney, their response was, he's much more likable. <laughs> and, and it's funny because you watch the, um, you watch this interrogation and, you know, the guy's under a lot of pressure. It's, it's a, and he, but he has this very odd uh, way of communicating and he's very thoughtful. He slows, he's very controlling. He slows conversations down and you can see it's not with, it's with the, the, or it feels to me like it's with the intent of getting having buying himself some time to think about what his response is going to be which is very smart and you know he he doesn't i be, to be honest with you he doesn't seem like you know wiley coyote super genius he he seemed like a, a guy who he was fairly put upon and 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 um so it's an interesting thing i was talking with john lynch and he came in and he did a reading and he's spectacular i mean he's a spectacular actor he's uh so watchable and so um, capable, you know, so nuanced, and he can, you know, I mean, it's like he's like a, a, a you know, like all the guys in this scene, Alice Kateas as well, they're all incredibly facile in, in being able to communicate very subtle things. And so you can say to them, Well, try this, and you know, so it's like playing an instrument through, you know, you get to like go and whisper in somebody's ear, kind of do this, and then whisper in another guy's ear, try this, and then watch how these things play out because they will, they will take those directions and, and, and allow them to kind of permeate the, the, what it is that's happening. And, but it was, it was really interesting when, when John, I, we were talking about it and I said, I, w I want you to try doing the scene. I want you to try doing it like a guy who's innocent. You know, you don't know what this is. You're a little bit put upon because these police officers have come and you've been questioned before and you've been questioned before with, re with regards to Zodiac and you feel you've answered all the questions honestly and you come into this room, they're interrupting your day. They're obviously casting some kind of aspersion because they're, they've asked you know, your superiors for your time and you come into a room and you sit down and you offer up to answer all their questions as honestly as possible. And halfway through the conversation, you begin to realize that it looks pretty bad. <laughs> and I want you to try to sort of take it back at that point. I want you the time that they want to see your watch. You, you begin to realize, oh, well, wait a minute. This is, this could be very, very bad. And he did it, and <laughs> he looked way more guilty <laughs> taking that approach than he did when he was playing, when he was kind of playing a guy who was trying to hide the truth. So it's an interesting thing, you know, it's, it's, there's the perception of, there's behavior, the perception of the behavior, there's the, you know, when actors are trying to lead you to a conclusion or when they're just obliviously in the moment, how, what the audience brings to it, what the, what the other characters bring to it, or what the other, how the other characters point the audience. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, ultimately this movie is just about behavior. It's about casting wonderful faces and performers and, and they just talk. I mean, that's all that happens in this movie. So that was a, a 
different and interesting thing for me. It was a, it was not a place where I feel most safe. I mean, I do, you know, I tend to kind of think things through to the point where wooden Indians could show up and I could at least finish the day's work. But, but when you have, you know, people of this caliber and they're bringing all this great stuff to it, it's so much fun to kind of, you know, sit by the camera and watch how it plays itself out. Well, Don's a very reliable guy. If he were to tell you something, I might believe it to be true. This one. What about it? Here, where he spells Christmas with two S's. We got a Christmas card from Lee a couple of years ago. He spelled it the exact same way. Christ Mass. Would, would you still have that? Uh, I can look for it. Thank you. That'd be great. Is there anything else we can do to help? The brother said he would search Lee's apartment next time he went out of town. I get you around the warrant. For the time being. I didn't prep this movie in the same way that I've prepped other movies. I, I didn't do any storyboards. I didn't want to do any storyboards. I did some previs for the murder sequences just so that people could have an idea of, of what we were going to see, the extent of what we were going to see. But for the most part, it was kind of, I think we want to be here for this. I think we want to, and I was trying to, I mean, this movie is very simply staged. And, um, and that was always the guiding principle. It's like, you've got to do this in the, in a way that is, uh, you know, it's, it's not about being meat and potatoes. It's about being, I don't want people to be distracted from anything that the characters are saying. It was a, a very conscious decision to, you know, we don't want any artifice. We don't, we don't want to underline anything cinematically. We want to just present behavior and see where see where it leads the viewer he was killed a day before halloween yeah. and you received a halloween card you know these are all fascinating pieces of minutia robert it's uh it's a bit early in the day paul <laughs> it's 11 o'clock and we missed editorial sorry i, I didn't no, no. mean to wake you up no, no. i just i just thought that This suspect is not your Zodiac. The sample matches the cancel checks in the application. Mm-hmm, perfectly. So we've just retested the left hand. I mean, we know he's ambidextrous. In 38 years, I've never seen anyone that ambidextrous. Both hands would have commonalities. I'm sorry. It's not gonna work. Homicide, Tosky. Elias Kateas. Elias, um, I was somebody that I had you know, always wanted to work with. I, I, I talked with him about, I think it was in seven, I'm going back that far, 13 years. And we'd never been able to get on the same kind of page. So when it came up for him to play Jack Molinax, Molinax was from Texas and he was, you know, couldn't, I mean, Elias is so a New Yorker. <laughs> but again, he's a great listener and a wonderful persona. So again, it tended to be more about the impression that actors left as opposed to what they look like. So a lot's been written about this shot as, a, as some kind of flourish. But again, it just seemed to be part of the fabric of, or part of the, the structure of what we were talking about. We needed to have some things that were quintessentially San Franciscan that would show our a passage of time now, this was a series of still photographs that uh, Craig Barron at Matt World found, or maybe, I don't know what, maybe Max found them. They were a series of stills of the construction of the Transamerica Pyramid. I think Transamerica 
had actually taken the photographs to document it. And we turned these over to Matt World and said, this is what we want to do. We want to do this shot. We, we need to show 11 months pass. And I don't know how long it takes to photo a skyscraper. And, um, you know, probably the skyscraper was done in late 71. So we're probably, you know, fudging things a little bit. Um, by having it, but it, but it needed to show. We needed to show a passage of time, and we wanted something that had something to do with the uh, with the uh, skyline of San Francisco. And so we turned it over to Craig and and Matt World, and just said, you know, go nuts. Make give me a give me a time lapse sequence that shows. Now there's you know all kinds of things that are. I mean that the sun moving across it is really the sun moving across it in one day. But um, but the interesting thing. And and there's probably no way that that you know panels siding like would pop on in the middle of the night because chances are they're not working through <laughs> through the night operating heavy machinery. But in any case, the the notion was one of it wasn't meant to be, you know, let's have a directorial flourish here. It was like how do we tell the story of the passage of time? And originally there was a whole montage an audio montage that happened under it where you had guys talking about Rick Marshall and guys talking about, you know, some of the other, um, you heard phone conversations and you had Mel Nikolai and, and um, Ken Narlo. And in the end, it just was too difficult for test audiences to kind of follow it and they just needed a reprieve. So we, um, <clears throat> we ended up cutting all the dialogue out of it and just showing the thing and playing Marvin Gaye music, which you... Can't really go wrong with that. So I just asked him straight out if he thought Lee was capable of killing people. Because of patient confidentiality. The man said yes. Again, you know, this is one of those meat and potato scenes where where Bill Armstrong has to get a new piece of information, and um, and again, we had police reports that that talked about a meeting between Lee's sister-in-law and 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 when we talked to her, she did not recall it. She said there's no way it could have happened, and and. You know, we had to kind of go with the. We, we went with the police reports, and we told her what we were doing. They were, um, you know, the Allen family were um, unbelievably respectful and and listened to what we intended to do, and it was never our intention to punish the innocent. And so, you know, we tried to be as respectful about that as we could with all the victims and all the victims' families, and you know, and I do think that. Every effort was made to make sure that people were presented warts and all, but that it was, you know, this was a time and a place people really wanted to do what was right. Change like Zodiac would manifest it physically, altering his handwriting. Which is why Sherwood couldn't get a match for mail samples. We got Terry I don't think that any of this, whether it's a misconception that um, that Lee Allen was Zodiac, I don't think it was. There was. I'd never got the sense there was anything malicious on the part of Don Chaney. I, I believe he believes what he what he said happened, and you know Dave Tosky believes it to this day, and Robert Graysmith believes it because Dave Tosky believes it, and and uh, that's the story that we were presenting. This is a scene that came out in the last test screening that we did in um, New Orleans. We showed the movie, and and people just could not abide by a scene of three guys talking to a speakerphone. I, I, this scene cracked me up. I just, the conceit of it, that you would kind of get this big wrap, wrap up. And I, and I felt like the audience needed it. Maybe they don't. They certainly didn't in the, in the final. But, but I love the idea of watching how police, the police have to lay it out 
for themselves. They have to lay it out in a convincing manner. There are certain things that they, I mean, we, there's the moment in here where he talks about the weapons and, and there's a, they shoot a little glance between each other and they'll list them. They don't really have that stuff at their fingertips, but it's the kind of process that um, police officers go through as they compile their case and they, and they you know, uh, put, as they build their, their belief structures. And, um, you know, they have to prove it to themselves and to one another over and over and over before they're given, you know, the opportunity to go and serve a warrant and, or get a warrant to serve. And I, I like that. To me, it was a very interesting uh, sort of tapestry of facts and circumstantial evidence. Berryessa murder, on the day that the two kids were stabbed, his neighbor saw bloody knives in his truck, which he claimed were used to kill a chicken. Does he have any alibis? And anytime you can cut to a speakerphone as, as the <laughs> as the Charlie's voice. I just love the idea of these guys laying it out for Charlie. And it seemed like such a 70s idea. What name? Zodiac. Alan wears a watch that bears both the word and crosshair symbol. And he mentioned Zodiac to Cheney a year and a half before it appeared in any letter. John. That's pretty good, guys. You think so, too? Let's take it to a judge. This is a trailer park in Burbank that had been shot for Bad News Bears and, uh, I don't know, I've been shot many times as, as a trailer park, but we brought in this pink trailer that most look like Lee Allen's trailer in Santa Rosa. And we ended up not, we were thought we were gonna do matte paintings to take out the gravel pit that's in the background. Oh. And again, we don't have photographs of this. We just have what David and Bill told us about it, that there were cages all over the place and that place was in real disarray. And, and we don't know what the, the kinds of pornography that were found in the trailer. We don't know what it was, so we had to, you know, we went through clearances and 269 soulmates we could clear. <laughs> so it ended up in the movie. But again, probably he wasn't interested in 269 soulmates, given his rap sheet. And again, this is a, a great example to my way of thinking of watching how actors can... You know, it's like they say in basketball, it's moving without the ball. It's so nice when you see guys just going through a process, even though they know that they're, they're not the object of fascination. They're just sort of the vessels by which the story is going to be told. And it's a very, you know, it's a lost art. You know, a lot of acting in this day and age is about making faces and feeling pain. And, and these guys just... They're so good at, you know, navigating through the experience and making it real for non-participants. We found in the cab. Well, he's got the same size shoes and gloves as he. Probably just a coincidence. Again, all the stuff that that they're talking about that's found in here is, is you know, including the gloves, size seven gloves. All that stuff's in the police reports, and and all that stuff is stuff that, of course, solidified it in the minds of Bill and Dave. And. Um, I don't see anything particularly ironic about him driving up in a Carmen Ghia 
a lot's been made about that. But he had a Carmenghia. He actually had a cream-colored Carmenghia, but we couldn't find a cream-colored Carmenghia. And it's a problem with the high definition with Vipers shooting white in sunlight. I remember being in my parents' <laughs> Audi 100 LS, driving away when we when we moved from Marin County in the, in 76 suitcases and everything boxes packed in this car and as we drove I remember looking back on what was probably just south of Vallejo I remember thinking to myself I wonder did they ever catch Zodiac it was like one of these things as I was asking myself as we moved away as, as I looked back on you know my childhood in an odd way it was like there was that thing that did that ever get and nobody really had an answer so when I read the script there was an answer to why there was no answer it was kind of a cathartic thing. The Dirty Harry scene was, in my conversations with David Toskey and with Robert Graysmith, they were a little amused by the way that Hollywood had depicted the Zodiac case. They were sort of tickled by it. I guess I didn't see Dirty Harry until I was probably 12. I didn't see it till its re-release. But I remember because Zodiac was such a kind of a personal thing, it seemed to me was, you know, this person had kind of crept into our collective unconscious and fucked with us for so many years that when I saw it, when I saw Zodiac as plot device in a movie, I was a little bit appalled. And I talked to Dave about this and he said, well, you know, he, he was a little sickened by how easy it was all concluded in the movies and, and kind of resented the fact that, you know, people were saying to him, hey, Clint Eastwood sure did a great job with your case. And so we wanted to depict that in the theater, we, in this theater sequence. And the quote, hey pal, they're still, they already making movies about it, was something that um, Toski said to us that he really felt at the end of watching it that they were ostensibly done or that the public no longer felt a need for closure. And in some weird way that the, the ending of Dirty Harry had in some way... Um, superseded the need for closure in, in the actual Zodiac investigation. And I thought that that was an interesting thing to kind of talk about and use that as the fulcrum for the first half of the movie and the second half of the movie, that, that Dirty Harry could, in a way, be the moment in time where the audience experiences a little bit of the despair. That, that uh, And I certainly felt that. I remember uh, as a 12-year-old as a watching the movie, I sort of felt like, that's it, huh? It's just, I guess in real life we don't, we don't need that same clothes. It's, it's, it's almost better to have some sort of uh, placebo closure than it was to, to acknowledge the fact that there was no real closure. So the music montage was something that I wanted to do I mean, we'd done the Transamerica building and we'd shown passage of time in different ways, but uh, I wanted to have a real mass culture reference in transporting us forward four years. And so the idea was to do this montage purely of audio of, of different songs and to finally take the movie from mono to stereo, since, you know, six track stereo only really kind of came on the scene with Star Wars. So we were moving forward to 1976, 1977, and, and so what I wanted to do was sort of open up the surrounds and kind of stretch the audience forward. And 
you know, let them know the movie is not over. In fact, this is, <laughs> in some ways, the midpoint, which I'm sure elicited groans from test audiences. But uh, I felt it was important, and I liked it as a way of telling the story. That's the fabulous Andy Walker, whose character, again, as an extra, you know, he he won't work unless he has an idea, a very specific idea of who his character is. So um, he he was playing a reporter who was breaking Watergate. He was on the phone, and every if you walked past him while we were shooting, he was on the phone constantly saying, well, I think there's something to this whole Watergate thing. So that's what's going on in the background and with Andy's character. Don Burt, who did the production design, is um, wonderfully talented and extremely good production designer. Um, felt very strongly that we needed to show the passage of time in the in the Chronicle um, offices. And so um, and he came up with this beautiful kind of color scheme notion that we would go, you know, it's right after the Montreal Olympics and, you know, there's primary colors and, and you know, it was a very kind of primary time. And um, so we go from the drab kind of gray metal office uh, furniture to the blue IBM Selectrics and the and the terracotta colored walls and and green so it go, becomes this and we also add the drop ceiling the 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 light fixtures themselves change it moves out of the 60s and into the 70s this was a scene that um I loved shooting I really dreaded it initially I thought oh my god it's going to be so mawkish I I don't know how to I don't know how to help these guys other than than to say Whatever you do, don't make it mawkish. Make sure that <laughs> I mean, I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to expect, and we went to rehearse the scene. We parked this car and and turned on a couple of um, really simple work lights just to just to watch, and uh, and they were just wonderful. It was like I was watching it on screen, just going, "Wow, it's better than better than I could imagine," and uh, and both of them, both Tony and. And Mark really find this great kind of sweet spot in uh, how men talk to one another, how how they express their disappointments, and they and they, you know, how they and how cops, you know, kind of there's there's this honor amongst them that 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 is unwritten and unspoken, untalked about, and and I love the the way the scene turned out. Boys need to be tucked in, please, and the baby needs changing. I'll flip you for it. You wish. Nobody has more Zodiac crap than you do. There's a part of Sausalito that you drive past on, on on 101, coming from the Golden Gate Bridge. And I don't know where Paul Avery lived on his houseboat, but I always saw it as this place. And we found a, a houseboat that had shingles because we had a um, footage of Paul talking on the on a back porch of his houseboat, and it was shingled. So we were just looking for something with shingles in it. And... Um, and Don Burt built, this is actually shot on a stage, 
um, just the shot where they where they walk up to the where Jake walks up to the uh, houseboat is shot in Sausalito, and the rest of it is shot on a soundstage. But I love the idea of him again. The conceit of the scene is that he's going to try to rekindle the interest um, in Zodiac of the person that he considers to be the foremost expert and and his hero. And he sees Avery, and Avery is uh, fairly ruined. And um, and we shot the scene once, and it really didn't work. There were many, many different ideas as to why it didn't work. But it, fundamentally, I think that we were just... Uh, it seemed very simple to me. I, I, I love the notion of kind of, you know, opening Graysmith's eyes to the fact that the world just isn't wasn't working the way that he saw it. Um, the, that even the people that he thought stood for justice and, and justness, um, that there's the, the, there's the professional newsman in, in Paul Avery, that there's a part of him that sees righteousness and goodness and all that, but there's also the part of him that is um, uh, a professional. And the fact of the matter is, that that's not what was happening anymore. And that there was really, you know, don't cry over spilt ink. But the, but the, and this reminded me very much of the, of the newsmen that I'd met with, uh, there were friends of my father's. There was a part of them that was very much about people paying their dues or paying their, paying the price for what it is that they did. But then there was also, you know, they were fairly forgiving and, and kind of cold about things when they took too long. It just, at a certain point, it just, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't news anymore. And so I, I thought that that was, although this scene probably never took place, I know that, that Robert went and, and spoke to, to Paul and told him that he wanted Paul to, he, he was trying to kind of fire Paul up and Paul wasn't really that interested and it probably wasn't as, as callous as as it's portrayed in this scene, but but um, I like the notion of the the coming of age, and then I liked the fact that the Graysmith that we see his the resolute nature of his decision when he goes home to the person he trusts the most, his wife, and she says, "Where have you been?" And he says, "At the library." We really get the idea that he has not been discouraged by Avery's snide comments. And then this scene was tricky because we had to count on the audience being able to recognize Washington and Cherry. And I hope that they do. Thank you. This is some great wardrobe, Casey's Storm. Wasn't slavish to Tosky's, you know, style sense, but it was this is the sense of him, you know, and I love the uh, the bow tie and the quick draw holster. You're busted by magic. I'm Robert Bracebook. I work at the Chronicle. I was wondering if I could buy you lunch. Sure. So you're a friend of Paul Avery's? 
And this is a scene, we shot this scene once and it was kind of cobbled together. Poor Mark had to eat about, had to take four bites of about 74 different hamburgers because there was, couldn't quite get the rhythm of this. And Jake was, he wasn't sold that the text was correct or what the tone of, of his um, questioning of Toski. But we reshot the scene and, and we went back and this is the first version of it and the first version was, was better. Can I show you something? I've been doing research on uh, the first cipher. Everything an amateur would need to create it to be found. I love the woman who looks like Gloria Steinem in the background. A lot of times when we're, we're shooting, I'll refer to extras in the background as people that they look like, because you <laughs> can't always say okay, the guy over there with the brown shirt or whatever. So you just go, Gloria Steinem needs to move left a little bit. And we um, often amuse ourselves with those little, uh, you know, the guy who looks like Wally Cox or the guy who looks like whomever. Don Knotts needs to move to his left a little bit. But that was Gloria Steinem that day. There's a wonderful handoff that's made in this. And, and Jake does a great job with missing it at first and then understanding what it is that Toski's saying to him. I can't allow you to help. I can't discuss the case with you. I can't give you information, and I certainly couldn't tell you to go see Ken Narlo in Napa. In A-R-L-O-W. This is a mat shot that uh, was added at the last minute. It was based on uh, the poster that Paramount came up with. And Matt World did the um, did the final artwork for the poster, and we were looking for a shot that kind of kicked off Graysmith's going north. He's going to finally go north and sit down with Ken Narlow and and insinuate himself into it or or show his enthusiasm. And so we um, did that shot. It was all CG. Donald Logue is. A, I worked with Donald for the first time in God in 1980. Six or eighty-seven or something like that. We did some Budweiser commercials, and he was fantastic even then. And I actually his the cab driver that he that he did for MTV. I never even recognized <laughs> that it was him. But time and time, you know, we'd run into each other at things, and I always remembered him because he was so kind of funny in these Budweiser commercials that I'd done. And um, when the opportunity to to cast Ken Narlo, I was trying to think who who can we get? Who can we get? And uh, so we asked Ken, I said, I called him to tell him, hey, listen, we got a guy, but, you know, tell me, who, who would you want to see play you? And he said, well, let me, let me ask my wife. He came back and he said, George Clooney. So I was really happy that we had Donald Logue, but, but I think um, Ken Narlo really wanted to be played by George Clooney. I don't know that Jake feels this way. I know people feel I don't give Jake enough credit. I, I will tell you right now that he wrote the funniest line in the entire movie. And he came in and he said, I want, I want to try another take of this where Aurelius lets me in. And, and when he says, you don't smoke, do you? I'm going to say to him, I'm mean, just, just watch what I'm going to do. And he walked in and Elias said, you don't smoke, do you? And he said, once in high school. And I almost fell on my chair. It was because it's such a perfect epitomizing of who this guy is. That when he talks to authority figures, he, he immediately has to tell the truth. He's compelled to tell them, even though it's something that he's embarrassed about or or he feels inside and and it's actually the funniest line in the movie and and 
Jake Gyllenhaal wrote that. This was about three days of like shooting motion control, like little. <laughs> there was the motion control unit that just had this like Cooper controlled animation stand, like um, cell mover, and uh, Fluffy, <laughs> who's our resident visual effects genius. He brought in this thing so we could do these little pans, and he ended up, he was like, oh, I'll do it. And so we set him up, and he, I think at the end of about two and a half days of no sleep, shooting just, you know, all these, like, tight inserts on, on I, I think by the, it was the last time he ever volunteered to do anything. He was, I think he was cured of that. We tried as much as possible, in, in not in a slavish homage to American graffiti, but I did want to have you know, real radio programs of the day that you heard in, in places. And one of them, you know, there's the, the, at the beginning, there's the Gensler Lee Diamonds jingle was playing on the radio. And that was like something growing up from Rin. I mean, you always heard the Gensler Lee Diamonds jingle. You always heard, you know, Matthews, Top of the Hill, Daily City. You always had, there were certain radio, you know, Dr. Don Rose. There were certain things that you heard always whenever you were in a car, you know, you... And we tried to incorporate that stuff as much as possible in in the backgrounds. I love this scene. This is the the deep throat scene where 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 Jake finally goes and tells Mark what he's kind of come up with. And and we we put Margot, um, Graceman's daughter, in the baby carriage that he's 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 brought to this meeting because in you know in real life Robert <laughs> brought his kids to a lot of places. I think it, um, he actually brought his children to when he went into the hardware store to see Lee Allen. Um, and we wanted to incorporate some of that stuff. When we shot this, we had shot the sequence once in San Francisco under the bridge, under the Bay Bridge, and it just seemed too poetic. And so we went to this place on Wilshire Boulevard, and, we, and you know, that's basically what you see is what it is. We put, put in some benches and... Uh, and Mark gives this wonderful performance here of of this kind of, he's encouraged this guy, but he doesn't know whether he's encouraged him too much. And he doesn't, certainly doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't want to get drawn back into this thing, but he certainly wants to give him enough stuff to, this might be somebody that he can, that he can use or that he can, might be somebody who'll stick with it. And I, and I love his tone here. Jill Hall showed up this night and he was ill. He had a flu and he was at about 102 temperature. And he didn't think he could go on. And he said to me, you know, I I, I don't think I can do this. I, I think we're going to have to do this some other night. And I just said to him, there is no other night. We're doing it tonight. You're going out and doing it. And he, I mean, I think in a weird way, it focused him because he's, so, <laughs> not only because he wanted to leave so bad, but also because I think it just, it, there was something kind of about his, his um, feverishness that, uh, that focused that performance, and he's truly great in that scene. Like maybe Melvin Bellai could. He should be along. The sugar cookies thing, I think, is something that Jamie came up with. He always liked to have little bits of stuff for the actors to do. You know, would you like some milk? Can I get you this? And and the how they sort of try to derail Robert in his inquiry. And I love the idea of the woman who's dusting and the woman who's polishing silver in the background. And he's getting all the information that he actually needs from people who are totally unaware that they're being interviewed. 
and are really, you know, trying to sort of attend to his, they're embarrassed by the fact that Melvin Pella is so late. I thought that's a, that's a nice construction for, or nice um, complication for scene. I wanted to talk to him. I said, he is not here. He said, I have to kill. Today is my birthday. And then he hangs up. Then the letter arrives. So the call came before the letter of December 20th. Mr. Bellet was gone for a week. He came back on Christmas. Not a good day to work. So he left on the 18th. Is that helpful? She said it this was our um, one of our days in front of City Hall in San Francisco. And, you know, all the period vehicles that you see moving in the background. <laughs> or don't see moving in the background and all the people with the period dress. But I, I love scenes like this where somebody's just in the foreground and you get this feeling that the world is, and you never show the other side of the phone conversation. You just hear it. And it's such a great and simple, this is probably the tightest or most direct homage to all the president's men that we have. Cause it's, there's that scene in the, in the movie where Redford goes to, the phone booth to talk to Deep Throat. Didn't take place. Let's say it really was Zodiac. Why would he volunteer the day he was born? Plus, Again, I love Zach, and, and his he's just kind of fed up with everyone's theories and on what Zodiac is or what Zodiac's become or what Zodiac isn't. And, and I love the way that he... We needed somebody in the movie to just kind of go... Hey man, we did that. We went down that road. We've, in, you know, there's a lot, maybe too much time is spent in the movie talking about the roads that they have taken. But I do like the end where he says, "Let me give you a little piece of advice," and um, and you know, he's he's got such a wonderful manner. He's such a good communicator as an actor. This is a scene that we thought for sure would be really, really funny for people in San Francisco, but. Apparently, the San Francisco screening, nobody laughed on the the Herb Cain line. Maybe it's maybe it's uh, a joke for an older audience, but but I love the notion that <laughs> I love the notion that it's never occurred to Robert that that the uh, we had a couple of things that we did in this, and and I don't I've not experienced Robert as having no sense of direction, but I like the idea of a character who's like not really sure about how far away Sacramento is. I mean, in actuality, if he went to speak with Mel Nicolai, he would have had to have driven to Sacramento and be coming back from Sacramento. So the fact that he's now going to go see uh, Sherwood Morrill and it's in Sacramento doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But in any case, um, I like the idea of a hero who's kind of huh, where is that exactly? You know, the, we have that whole scene where he's asking where Riverside is and she knows where Riverside is and he doesn't. But I love the, the notion of um, what's the one thing that we know about the Zodiac? He reads the Chronicle and the way that she says it is so, it's so great and dry. I don't know that this ever happened. It probably didn't, that the phone rang and somebody said to him, but it's one of those great movie coincidences that this very moment that he's arguing with his wife about how uh, she should not be concerned that his name's in the paper with regards to his Zodiac book. Then the phone rings and somebody says, are you the Robert Gray Smith in the paper? I thought that was funny. One thing that Melanie Graysmith did tell us about <laughs> Robert was that he, um, he ate a lot of toast that he liked to toast. So we put in a little joke at the end of that scene where she says, 
Your toast is burning. Your toast is burning. We choose at some point in our lives how to physically construct each letter. Sacramento is not really that lush or green a, a place as is depicted in the movie. But uh, we shot this in Hancock Park, and it was this uh, lovely house that had a little garden out in the back that walked um, where the it was sort of surrounding this little well. And uh, I just liked it as I liked the image of Sherwood Morrill as the sort of green thumb gardener. We don't know. Excuse me, I got to spray this. How many suspects were cleared through Henry? All of them. Also, the prison and cab. No match was ever found. Is there any way that someone could beat a hand? That shot took a long time to get the dolly to land, just to the point where Jake was landing. And about a month ago, a man showed up on my doorstep, very distraught. Uh, his name was Wallace. I love any time somebody walks over to another character carrying a pesticide sprayer. I think it's a good way to. <laughs> if you're going to impart this kind of backstory, at least put a pesticide sprayer in a character's hand. I never cleared a Rick Marshall. This was one of those scenes where <clears throat> we were trying to decide whether or not we needed <clears throat> any more coverage, whether we needed a shot of looking at Jake, where Jake, where we are in his eyeline, he's looking at Chloe, and whether we needed a close-up of Chloe. But I sort of liked the way that it played out in one simple... You sort of got the tension of this thing happening in a, the moment. And I love the way that she doesn't believe a fucking word he's saying. Anything to you? What are you after? What do you got? Hypothetically? You just named my favorite suspect. Now, there's a lot of, um, there are many differing opinions about whether or not the Rick Marshall trail should have been followed if we were telling the Arthur Lee Allen yellow book story of uh, Robert Graysmith. And I... Why didn't you test him for handwriting? I don't know. It seemed to me like it was it was imperative to give him uh, comparison and contrast, that we needed something else for him to... We needed him to disappear down the other route, you know, another rabbit hole. We needed him to... to and... Um, and I like the fact that, you know, Narlo has his own theory. I think it's imperative when you're discussing Zodiac that you discuss. I mean, because everybody's, nobody knows and everybody's got a favorite. The Captain Ken Narlo um, placard that's on Donald's desk there is actually taken from a photograph we did. And the Mel Nikolai, that was actually taken from a photograph of Mel Nikolai. In the 70s, believe it or not, people did have their little name plaques on there. And uh, as, as much as it seems like subtitling, it's based on actual uh, reference. This is a perfect example of, you know, Don Burt's um, really subtle use of the drop ceiling. It's the only time we see the drop ceiling in the, uh, or the second time we see the drop ceiling in the, in the Chronicle, and so we made sure that we framed as many of these shots as looking up so that people would hopefully at least subliminally get the idea that time has passed. Rick Marshall is the Zodiac. I need a sample of his handwriting to confirm it. Can you help me or not? Rick used to draw 
movie posters for the theater Vaughn worked at. I'll send one down. Thank you. This took forever to try and get this camera move that would sort of show the the different K's. And um, it's one of those things that you look at or you don't look at in the movie and you go, well, there's no reason that should take 25 takes. But sometimes it does. I've been to the DMV and, and I talked to her parents, but still nobody knows where to find her. Mr. Graysmith, most of the writing matches the exemplar. In a way, though, it's the part that doesn't match that scares me the most. What do you mean? Well, on the poster, the one letter that absolutely, positively does not match is the letter K. You wouldn't happen to have any animal crackers in there, would you? Unit 5, Tosca needs to call in on a landline. This is the Trans Bay Terminal in San Francisco. I always love this. I always wanted to. We were going to shoot a scene, and I think we were going to do the, the the blowout, the tire blowout in the game here originally, and we couldn't uh, shoot there. But we were able to shoot there this time, and brought in the period Greyhound buses, and um, you know, as luck would have it, there was a police telephone right now. We added that, but uh, I love the scene. I just love the Kojak light and taking off. This was a scene that we added after we cut the movie together. We rewrote the letter. It used to happen in uh, in Dermot's conference room or Dermot's office, where he read the. But we added the thing where the internal affairs guys wanted to speak with Tosky, and uh, and uh, so it sort of positioned the whole investigation into Tosky. It was tough. It was a very difficult kind of, you know, subplot to go off on. And uh, But it was really important. It was important to show. I know it's, it's a part of David's life that he would much rather be forgotten. But it was a part of the Zodiac investigation and did, did uh, create real problems for for him, for the department, for the investigation, and, and we needed to kind of do it, It's uh, give it its due. And I think it's important that the movie points out that he was exonerated. This was a, you know, again, this is a, a blue feed to the, well, it's an actor that we brought in and we shot in front of a blue screen and we comped him into a still photograph of the city in the background and comped him into the TV and it was all done in... Uh, Shake. On record saying that she believes Tosky wrote the letter to drum up publicity for himself. Nothing we see here has a character in that column. Like David got a kick out of it, and so he wrote a couple Phone of acting is a really, it's a difficult thing because it's, because you are left so much, to, you know, you, you, for the most part, probably don't have access to the actor on the other end of the line, and you're not... So it's rare that you can find people, I mean, oftentimes people are truly terrible in this and they have to sort of be tricked into, you know, by having them do it again and again. But uh, Jake and Jules are both did a great job with the making it feel real. works at your paper. We trust...
This is the first scene that we shot with Mark and with Jake. And this is in San Francisco on an overcast day. And we shot 56 takes <laughs> to get this, to get the timing of this right, to get one actor to hand off to the other actor to hand off to the... And um, I think that they thought I was in, insane. But to get this thing to happen really simply um, and without any kind of... I just didn't want to have to cut between them. I just wanted them to present their what they'd been up to and what their thought process was without any... Uh, this, I think, we only did 22 takes, uh, the second shot in the scene. But the first one, I think, was 56. He didn't announce his murders anymore, Dave. He was just going to do Do you know what the chances of arresting someone are now? Too much time has gone by. I look at it this way. I want to be able to cut where it serves the story the best. I don't want to have to cut because somebody fucks up a line or because the camera shakes. or I don't want to have to cut on things I don't want to have to cut on. I want to be able to cut a scene where I feel like... And so... And that can often be difficult because a lot of times, I think, you know, depending on the kind of discipline that you have or the kind of discipline that you've developed, you know, different directors work different ways. Some of them are, are happy to let the material dictate where it's going. And I think that that's... There are certain scenes in this movie where that was okay. You know, there's certain scenes where, where they're in a in a coffee shop and they're chatting away, and sometimes it works in one, and sometimes it works in coverage, and and but um, but for the most part, you know, it's the succinct nature of how they're delivering the information and how because so much of it has to do with making sure that you don't lead people to the wrong conclusions or the right conclusions too early. Um, or worse, the right conclusions too late. So it's all about that parsing out of information, and, and so that's a difficult thing. And I think this is the um, this is the the second cipher, and I concur. And I think even Robert concurs that his solution in 1979 is is not the final solution to the cipher. I saw a cipher solution from Vallejo PD that looked pretty good. Max Daly, who's our was our researcher, sent it to me, and um, I don't know that it's ever been. It was pretty good. Um, it was interesting because it was time sensitive and had everything to do with. Um, um, I think it had to do with this KGO, but it was, in, it was interesting. I, I don't know if it'll ever be. Who knows? Hopefully, though. Somebody will do the legwork to either incorporate it or separate the wheat from the chaff. I love this scene. I, I liked that it wasn't heroic. And I, and I liked the fact that Graysmith has no insight into his own obsession. And I felt Jake really sort of showed somebody who was torn between, I get what you're saying to me, I get what you're asking of me, and I don't know how to respond. And I don't know how to tell you how important it is, except to show you that, you know, I feel trapped in 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 wanting to know something, and I don't even know if the thing that I want to know is the thing that will finally release me from. And I thought that that was a really, I, I just love, I I didn't want to see, you know, the age old 
argument with the wife, and I thought that Chloe brought a real kind of, when she says that's not good enough, it just seemed to me like they were never going to agree on this thing. And I thought it was, I thought it was smart, well, smart acting. I thought, I thought it was, it was uh, complicated. Are you done? Can I go? Mr. Vaughn, Mr. Graysmith. Yes. This is a wonderful scene. Charles Fleischer came in and and uh, I would never have a I would never have thought Charles Fleischer would be interested in playing something like this, but he came in and he read for <laughs> this role and Larray brought me the tape and she said you got to see this and I saw it and we were like well Charles Fleischer's in the movie. This is in um this is actually a house that was right across the street from where we shot the um. The bus stop from earlier. It's in um, it's in Los Angeles, and um, it was an old house. And the interior of the house is exactly like this. This is a set that was built at Warner Hollywood, but it was an exact replica of a house that we scouted that we wanted to shoot in. The, the basement was not um, to our liking in terms of how it was laid out, so we ended up building. A set for the basement. The basement is actually based on Dermot Moroni's house. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why I was in the basement at Dermot Moroni's house, but I was. Oh, you know what? I saw because um, Brad Pitt said to me, hey, if we're going to do this whole scene with the space monkeys and Paper Street, you should see Dermot Moroni's basement because it would be perfect because you could build bunk beds down there and it's like, it's this whole world. So I'd gone to Dermot's house and seen his basement and so we decided to make the basement Charles Fleischer's basement looked like Dermot Moroni's basement. And the actual house that we were intending to shoot the kitchen sequence in um, didn't have access to that kind of a basement. It was much smaller. So we decided not to. We decided to build this whole thing. And, and the notion of the organist, projectionist, film fanatic, and, and Fleischer came in and he just had this great sort of I mean, you would never think of him as being sinister. He's just kind of, he seems, you know, oddly possessed, but he, but he's not. Until he says, that's my, that's my handwriting. And there's this element, <laughs> when he did it in the room, we just were like, wow, that's fantastic. It's just so, uh, it was so much fun. And um, even though, and this is again, you know, Whenever you do test screenings, there's most favorite scene, least favorite scene. This is the this is that scene, the, the scene that ends up on as many most favorites as it does on least favorites, because people get resentful of the fact that you're throwing them a red herring this late. And I understand that, but I can't apologize enough. I do the posters myself. It's my handwriting. We had issued a lot of coverage on the scene, and I know that it wore on everybody's nerves, but to get to the different angles to be able to have him cross over behind him, and we needed one where Jake looks left, and one where Jake looks right, and depending on which side we were going to go to. So we shot, I think we shot the scene for two days uh, to get all these little pieces. And 
drove everybody fucking nuts. I do. I love this. I love the idea of him feeling, <laughs> because he's so polite, feeling compelled to follow somebody who may or may not be a serial killer into his own basement. And I like that as a as a character moment that he just doesn't feel he can turn and run at this very moment. This is a scene I think that spoke really to the real benefits of shooting with uh, the Viper. This entire scene is lit with three 40-watt light bulbs. Film has its place. I think if you're making a movie in the jungle, you should... But I think if you're making a talking movie, if you're making a movie about people yakking, it's like, this is this is actually kind of a, a perfect choice. Harris, it was funny, he actually said to me at one point, you know, I noticed that he didn't have his light meter out, and I said, you know, you're not... Are you because at a certain point, you know, the camera is its light meter. You you look at the picture and then you go, yeah, that's what I want, or I want that a little bit brighter. And and um, he, and he kind of said to me, and and I, I don't think he intended it to be funny or ironic, but he said, you know, this is not even this is you know all you want me here for is for my taste. It's not really about being a f photographer. And I thought you're right. That is. That's all I've ever wanted. I don't want you to be a. I want. I want your taste. What you. That's the. That's the thing that makes you great. It's that. The taste. The, the level at which you're. The risks that you're willing to take. The depths that you're willing to go to in order to make an image feel like something. This is a fun scene. I like the mirror. We originally were going to do this whole thing with over the shoulders, and we see him, and we had the, we pulled the door out and shot over Jake's shoulder, and Charles shows up, and he spins around, and but it works so well in the mirror. His and you know, again, this was not something that was planned on. It was just the mirror was there. Thank you. And that's on location again in LA, and that's on a set. And so this is all blue screen. This is completely fake. This is Harris operating on B camera. It's a great, he really sticks that. And this is where he walks out. Nice work. And this was a, this was a crucial kind of pivot point. Some people it works and some, for some people it does not. The notion that Melanie has taken the kids and and has left him this note, and that that note is on the back of the Linda Del Buono, and uh, but I liked it as a I liked the way that it works. I liked that it was in the crunching up of the thing and his anger and his frustration that he goes back to the thing that may or may not finally kind of release him. And anytime you get to use him. Died rabbit's foot. So, keychain, it's always a kind of a good thing. We shot the scene once with another actress, and um, and it was a good scene. It just didn't have, he wasn't kind of possessed enough. And maybe it wasn't, I mean, again, I didn't want to do caged women in heat, but I wanted it to be a. Uh, 
I believe that this actually took place as a, as a phone call, Graysmith. Uh, and uh, and this is probably the the most contested link in the whole, because I don't think anybody. I don't know about this painting party. I don't know what I know that. Um, I know that Robert really believes that that's the linchpin, and it's a tricky thing. But um, it does lead back um, to Vallejo in an interesting way. And and again, we're taking dramatic license with Vallejo in making something about he that's we, we want to we have somebody in the scene with him saying that that's not that doesn't mean the same thing to me that it means to you and there's no way of being able to prove that what you're saying is is true and you know you have lee's brother saying he's was never at this party and you have people who can't place lee at the party but i think we're talking about you know at this point i'm the movie is talking about the, his possession, his 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 compulsion, the thing that's going to get him to the end. Are you sure? Yeah. How can you be sure? It's a long time ago. Think hard. I am thinking hard. It was Rick. No, it wasn't. It was Rick. It was Rick Marshall. No. Just say it. It wasn't Rick. And Clea Duvall is a wonderful actress. She was a lot of fun. It was Lee. Lee? Yeah, Lee. Sounds right. I love the idea of running up to a police department in the middle of the night saying, I need to go through your records. And there's, I think, Great compassion here in, in Elias's face, the way that he he wants he wants to see this guy be done with this thing. He wants just like he wants all everyone to be done with it, and I think that that really comes through. I shouldn't be talking to you. You got five minutes. Okay. Here, here, Linda states that some of Darlene's closest friends are Lee, who used to bring Darlene presents from Tijuana. So what? He knew her. Linda said Lee, this is Lee. That's just one name in a file that contains hundreds, it's nothing. Dave Toskey agrees with me. He reminds me of Francois Truffaut and Close Encounters in the scene, the way that he's like, hey, we're really sorry. We did this about 38 times, Jake spilling that coffee. He wasn't happy about that. I like the fact that you finally get to a point at his, his quote, investigation where when the killer calls him up at home, it's like, he can't wait to get back to work. It's like, just don't bother me now. Who's there? This was a critical scene because it, it needed, we needed to get the driver's license in his hands and we needed to send him back to his December 18th obsession. And I needed it to come out of um, this notion that there could be no reconciliation. And I wanted it to be in a kind of a mature way. I didn't want it to be in a, 
I, I don't think either of these people were particularly vindictive. And, and I think that, you know, I think at some point in his, it was funny, we gave the script to Robert and, and, uh, his only real note was, God, now I see why my wife divorced me, <laughs> which I think is kind of appropriate. And, and I think, in my experience with people who have these kinds of compulsive, my father was kind of this way, and he was the kind of guy who could become obsessed with a, a magic trick and want to desperately figure out how it was done. And he would, you'd see him in his bathrobe, like wandering the house, mulling over in his head, how could this be possible? How could somebody, you know? And um, and so it was kind of that. I, I didn't want Robert to not have enough sense that he can't see the effect that he, I wanted him to be able to say, I just don't, I can't have him see me like this at this moment and, and for him to mean it. And, and I thought Jake did a beautiful job with that. And I also think that um, Chloe, um, you know, I, I, I liked the fact that, you know, the woman who was being pushed out of his life by his obsession was able to say, okay, look, it's not in the cards for us, but, uh, and, and I know that you have something that you want to do and I want to try to support you in that, but for God's sake, finish it and then except get back to your responsibilities. This is taking the, there's a story that uh, Brian Glover, who's in it, who was a wonderful actor who was in Alien 3, told me about how he was served a divorce. He was, served, he was a professional wrestler and he was served divorce papers. His wife had been trying to serve him. And he had finished, and he'd been dodging the process server. And finally, he was at a, he had just finished a match, and he was coming out of the ring, and he was covered in sweat. And a guy came up to him and he said, Brian Glover. And he turned around and he said, Yes. And the guy slapped <laughs> the divorce papers onto the sweat of his back and then walked away. And I love the idea that he shows up, and we, we had this piece of paper that was sopping wet by the time Jake had been outside. And I said, Just pick it up and just slap it on the door. And, uh, it worked well. Andy knew Darlene. It's in the Vallejo files. Bolnick said that he was your favorite suspect, that you spent two years on him, and, and that nobody ever came close. All the evidence said no. Sherwood disqualified his handwriting. The same shirt with the drinks like Paul Avery now. And now we get back to the, you know, the, the dramatic crux of the film, which is for these two guys, could there be a scene where one of them, where the neophyte runs it down for the old pro, here's what I found, here's what I believe, what do you think? And the guy says, I've always believed that. I've always, it's not provable. It's not... It's totally circumstantial evidence. And why, you know, why did you need to go through all of those things that I went through? Why couldn't you have saved yourself? And um, and I like that idea that, that, you know, amongst the two of them, this is, this was their, this is where they ended up. They ended up back at this place where, where it was slightly more illuminated from another point of view. 
but it was the same circumstantial case and it was the same it was going to be the same frustrating end but that you know and i think that it's it's nicely drawn in the way in in jake's presentation of it that he finally feels like if you'll just tell me as the person i look up to that you concur i can move on and that and that toski says you know and that ruffalo says i concur and and write your book put it out there see what happens maybe it's maybe it'll stick maybe it won't and and i thought that that's as much solace as they were going to get that i thought it was a compelling end to a movie and then because of that book george bauer went to to uh, mike mijo at the end of the movie and or at the end of the the end of the 80s <laughs> and uh, got an id now as we all know 30 years hence identifications are as suspect as they are depending on light and faculties and inebriation and whatever other circumstances but but that in some way you know that other people finally believed what Tosk and Graysmith believed okay so they had to have known Darlene Farron right yes because of the phone calls on the night of her murder because of the Vallejo file we know that Darlene knew a man named Lee yes so all coincidence aside Robert how can you be sure that Lee Allen is a Lee from this file? Now Vallejo is a small town, but it's not that small. This is a nice scene. It's 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 we we shot the scene once and it and it didn't work out. There was a um, there was a sense I needed I really needed Jake to be have become the expert. I needed him to have the facts at his fingertips. And the first time we shot the scene, it just felt it felt like he didn't have that kind of he didn't have the the knowledge of an obsessive who's poured over something. He didn't. He didn't. He wasn't behind it in, in the same way. And we went back and reshot this. His father came down the set that day that we reshot this, and and uh, I think that gave him a little added confidence. But he nailed it on this day. It was perfect. The prince. The handwriting. I'm not asking you as a cop, but I am a cop. I can't prove this. Just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. It was compelling, and I needed it to be compelling because it was a final kind of conclusion to their stories. And and I think that people who uh, say there's no conclusion to the movie aren't aren't watching the same movie necessarily. Yeah, you don't. You know, we don't shoot Scorpio and he doesn't drop into Larkspur Landing. This was shot on a, on a set at Warner Hollywood, or the lot as it's now known. This is actually, the, that's not the Castro Theater. We, we kind of did a matte painting. This was shot in downtown LA and we made it look like the Castro Theater with a matte painting. This was a scene we we reshot the scene made it a lot longer it was a um, it was much more about jake seeing all these different faces and people in the in the hardware store and we went back to this first version of it because it was a little cleaner and a, l a little simpler 
I liked the more drawn out version, but I think it was too frustrating for audiences. Um, they just, uh, and, uh, by the way, in the reshoot, the, uh, calendar is not there. And this, I think we, the calendar, I think initially this was supposed to be, anyway, I've been in so many hardware stores where the calendars are old that when it was brought up, there was no reason to go back and reshoot this shot because John Carroll Lynch was so good in it. Um, and we could have gone in and digitally retouched it, but that would have made three or four people happy and been boring. I think that's the first time in motion picture history that Ontario Airport has been shot as Ontario Airport. So I take certain pride in that. We devised a new, uh, a new kind of indifference because of digital filmmaking techniques. We can now lay track in all of our shots and paint it out later, which we ended up doing a lot of. This guy, Jimmy Simpson, he is so fucking talented. He came in, we originally, um, we originally read him for uh, Duffy Jennings. Uh, Adam Goldberg ended up playing Duffy Jennings. And, uh, and Adam Goldberg looks nothing like Duffy Jennings. And again, in keeping with uh, my treaties to make sure that nobody actually looks like the person that they're supposed to be playing. But uh, Jimmy Simpson came in and he, we did the read-through and he ended up sitting next to Lee Norris who played Mike Majot or Majot at the beginning. And um, I was looking at the two guys and I thought, you know, they look oddly similar. And um, so we went to Jimmy and I said, you know, there's a scene at the end of the movie. It's not as many lines or as big a part as, as Duffy Jennings, but it's a critical scene and... and would you like to do this, be the be the last face in the movie as opposed to... He said, absolutely. I said, okay, it's only one day shooting. And he said, no problem. And he came in and he was so great. He was so spot on. You had a round face like this guy. There's Bob Stevenson. Bob Stevenson, who's a great friend and has been in almost every movie that <laughs> we wanted to make sure that Zodiac was uh, was depicted in each of the scenes where he was actually, where there was an eyewitness as he was described. And so there are scenes where he's 5'11", 195, and scenes where he's 6'1", 215. And so in each of those places, we have a different actor playing him. Sometimes he's wearing glasses, sometimes he's not. And... Um, so we tried as much as possible to to kind of keep with the description of the the assailant as much as possible. Again, we're not saying Arthur Lee Allen was the guy. To find that I was by the sea, gazing with tranquility. Just then when the hurdy-gurdy man came singing songs of love. Then when the hurdy-gurdy man Singing song, 